Hello and welcome to Jumalia, the podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a piece of pop culture that was important to him as a child. My co-host today is Sarah Griffin. Hi. You know her. Hello. How's it going? And our guest today is one half of Tram Press, Lisa Cohn. Yeah. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hello. Very good, thanks. What are you going to talk to us about? I'm going to talk about Stephen King cool. today, um, uh, with apologies for my terrible cold. Very good radio voice, it's fine. <laughs> good stuff. So, like, how old were you when you started reading Stephen King? What was the first thing you read? Okay, so I was trying to think about this. Um, uh, we, we were talking about this earlier, but this is the, the this is like the series for people who re- read things and encountered things when they were way too young. So I think I read Roald Dahl and went the logical next step to Christopher Pike, which yes. you probably know, the YA mm-hmm. books that were... Um, you're frowning at me, Sarah. Do you know Never them? Christopher who Pike. Is? Oh, okay. So they're YA books. They're horror novels for kids, and yeah. they're written by. I only found this out. I swear to God, th- like last year, and I was I was really surprised and it's so gullible. Christopher Pike is a pseudonym. Obviously, oh no, really? Christopher Pike was the first captain in the original Star Trek series. Yes, he's the guy in, in the thing with the beep beeps and all that. Yeah, yeah. So it was just names. Anyway, there's these like horror novels, and um, like what? What are they called? I'm, uh, there's I'm one lost. called Remember Me, and it was about a beautiful blonde cheerleader who dies, and her ghost narrates the story, and she mm-hmm. finds out who her murderer was. Oh. Last Act was my favourite one. It's about um, a school play and a, someone puts a real bullet into the gun instead of a blank. <gasps> right, <coughs> classic. someone dies, yeah. Typical Christopher Pike. So that's unusual that it's not a supernatural one for him. <laughs> but no, he, cause the thing is, like, you know, there's Point Horror and Christopher Pike. And Point Horror, it's always like a Scooby-Doo ending. It's always one of the teens doing it. Where Christopher Pike, it's usually actual horror. <gasps> like uh, Road to Nowhere is another great one, Christopher Pike, where a girl runs away from home, takes up two hitchhikers, they start telling her a story. Turns out stories about them, their ghosts, she's committed suicide, and they're trying to convince her to come back to life. And what's the age band on this? Yeah, I read it when I was about nine, I'd oh, say. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's like Roald Dahl Point Horror, Christopher Pike, Stephen King is kind of the... Yeah, so I think, I think my cousin, yeah. I'm trying to think how it happened. No, you know what happened first? I read Carrie. We found yeah. a copy yeah. of Carrie in my aunt's house and my sister Ailish read it first. Mm. Now Ailish is a year older than me and she taught me how to read more or less and like we would read together. Yeah. And she'd like read and tell me books and things. So she had read it first and she told me about it in a conversation about periods, you know, because mm. obviously Carrie is the big famous period book. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Judy Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never read Judy Bloom. I wish uh, I had, but I, I had it read to me by uh, like in, in like third class that they, they did like an audio book during class of it and I, I just found it so upsetting I was like I hate this I would much I think a much more appropriate teenage girl read is something like Carrie yeah, so you know? Carrie is um, and everybody knows this now but she's a teenage girl she's bullied in school she's uh, taking a shower the communal showers she starts to have her first period and all the girls start um, taunting her throwing mm-hmm. things at her and screaming period plug it up plug it up it's humiliating it's awful and she's completely broken by it and she's brought into the um, later she's brought into the office you know and the teachers are talking to her and saying we're all very sorry that this happened and she when the gym teacher goes to, to help her up, she grabs at her shorts and leaves a red handprint. And my sister oh. had said to me, she described this handprint scene. She said, it's just so good. Mm. And that's my first memory of Stephen King is the red handprint on the white shorts. And yeah. um, that was incidentally how I learned about periods. And um, I think it's good that you learn about them as a thing that is... Abject in a way, but like... <laughs> <laughs> horrifying and humiliating and a secret. 
not unlike telekinesis. So if you've been reading Matilda, you sort of already think that, you know, as a young girl, you have this latent telekinesis and all you have to do is work at it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Absolutely. Matilda had Miss Honey. Carrie did not have Miss Honey. And mm. they both practice at their telekinesis and it takes them in different directions. God. That's that's the book. I, that's that's your ideal gal novel then, isn't it? Matilda meets Carrie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like that's Matilda, crossover. You know, I think someone's done a cartoon about this. I can't remember who it was, where Matilda and Carrie meet. and they're Oh, like gal pals. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, and they it, fall in love. Maybe it was Heidi. <laughs> Um, but it's like <laughs> shipping it already, guys. <laughs> like, all Carrie needed, <laughs> Carrie needed a, a good gal pal, and she doesn't have that. She's got like oh, good Carrie. sort of intentions from Sue Snell, who um, decides I'm going to make this up to Carrie. She wants to sacrifice her own popularity. She tells her gorgeous boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to the prom. Mm. Carrie gets all dressed up, goes to the prom. Little lipstick, little mascara, beautiful dress. She looks beautiful. The absolute pinnacle of this moment, and the mean kids pour a bucket of pig's blood over her head, and everyone laughs. And she looks around and sees everyone laughing, including the nice gym teacher, mm. you know, and there's that moment where she thinks, well, fuck you. You you could never help me anyway. You were never, you know, the tools of the oppressor, the lipstick and the mascara can't help you. And will never so be enough, Carrie. She yeah. switches on her telekinesis, locks the place down, burns it to the ground and walks through the town and destroys everything. I'm not even talking about the mother. So do you know about the mother character in this? Go on. So her mother is this fundamentalist Christian lunatic who is um, manipulative and aggressive and physically abuses Carrie and tells her, you know, that she's going to go to hell. When Carrie comes home and says, I'm really upset about this whole period business, why didn't you tell me? Her mother tells her, this is because you committed sin. This happened to you. And not that this is a thing that happens anyway. Mm. So um, she comes home after killing everyone and her mother says, oh, this is all my fault and decides she has to kill Carrie, stabs her. But then there's this amazing standoff. And the movie adaptation by Brian De Palma from 1978 has um, obviously Carrie's played by Sissy Spacek. Slightly too attractive, if you ask me, because, you know, if Carrie had been beautiful, she wouldn't have had None of this would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but Piper Laurie plays her mother and she's terrific. She's absolutely batshit crazy. And um, the standoff between them is really upsetting, really terrifying. And... Um, it's just a really nice start. So yeah. that, that's where I started. And then I think shortly after, my cousin Paul came to visit and he had like a stack of Stephen King paperbacks and gave them to me. And I just made my way through them and read them all through secondary school. And, uh, and, and that's where that started. And I think he, because he writes sometimes twice, too many, or sometimes two books a year, but he basically writes them faster than you can read them. There's yeah. always a Stephen King book to read and it's like you can fall out of love with him for a while, for a few years and not read him and then come back again, which is which is what I'm doing. How many would you say you read? Oh, like, there's about 70. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say if I did, probably 50. Really? I'd say, I, I'd be like low-key fan. I would yeah. not be like a fanatic. I think actual Stephen King fans would listen to this and be like, who is this yeah. broad? Get that off. sounds like, um, I don't know if you've read Nick Hornby's 31 songs, where he's talking about Dylan. And he's like, I only own this, 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 this bootleg series, this, but I don't consider myself like a Dylan fan, you know? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. I'm like that with lots of my stuff, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, a, I don't qualify. When family members describe you as a fan of something mm. to someone else, you're mortified because you're afraid that's the person who's got the... Who's going yeah. to go, actually. <laughs> actually. Yeah. And also, I gave away all my Stephen Kings or I really? sold them. Like So in Galway... Charlie Burns bookshop. Oh, Charlie mm. Burns. If you give them your old books, they give you money and you buy new books. So yeah. I've actually ended up rebuying and selling Stephen King books over the years because you think, well, I've read Pet Cemetery now, I'm done. No, you're never done. You just keep buying it year after year after year. That one, and that's the one book I think that's still scary. I think you read it this week. Yeah, I actually only got halfway through it because then you said we want to focus on a different one. So I was like, 
Okay. I, 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 I unhelpfully was like, you should read Pet Cemetery, It, The Stand, and yeah. then everything. It's a good, it's like 4,000 words, or 4,000 pages of reading material, yeah. 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 But no, I, I was really enjoying Pet Cemetery, and it is scary, scary. It's, um, do you want to describe it for people who haven't, because it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be with the first half Ooh. of the yeah. well, what, what did you think it was going to be? Because actually, I, what I'm interested in is, what, what do people think Stephen King is? And particularly people who don't really read Stephen King, or haven't got into reading Stephen King, because I get a lot of the eyebrow thing, the sort yeah. of, oh, Stephen King, really, from people who read Harry Potter. Nothing wrong with Harry Potter, but mm. I don't know why Harry Potter is more respectable. You, I had I had a re- I have difficulty, with, I, I have a barrier with Stephen King, which is why I'm going to steal this temporarily from you, this copy, <laughs> this, this enormous tome of it, and get into it, because I'm really captivated um, I was given his uh, guide to writing in, during my masters and I hated it so I was like I'm not, not dealing with this guy really? yeah he was, never, he was never on my radar as a child um, as a young yeah. person at all I had we- like I, I, I'm always interested in the books that were in people's homes growing up mm. because mine were so so different and there's always people like Christopher Pike who I'm like who's that and they're like what are you talking about who's that who's ubiquitous and I'm like my oh. parents had no books no way there Libraries. Was, except for Different Seasons by Stephen King Oh, that was the only one well, I never read because the front had like Cujo on it or something or a dog and I was like that's scary but that was in a scary book always so I never actually got around to it Oh, and then okay. once I got started my own thing I was like well that's my parents books so probably different seasons just for that. context that's the I'm book sorry. with the novellas The Body which became the movie Stand By Me and no the, way. Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption which became Shawshank Redemption Apt Pupil I think mm. that it's in there as well isn't it yeah. yeah that was a movie with I think Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen yeah. holy shit um, yeah the, the fourth one that didn't. Oh, what was the fourth one? Oh, the breathing method. Which is, what's that? Which is okay. So this woman is determined to have this. She, so it's, it's all these guys. They meet at their guys' club and they play like chess and whatever. And they're in this car. Or this guy is telling the story about okay, we're in the chess club. They all they all uh, they all play chess and cards, but they all have to tell stories. So this one guy is telling the story about this woman who was determined to give birth to her illegitimate child, no matter what. It was very important to her, and she was like a really determined woman, and this is the gist of the whole story. But she's in a horrible car crash, and he, he's a doctor. This is how he knows. He comes upon the crash, and her head is like over here, and her body is there. Her body's going into labour, and she has somehow managed to like give birth because she's so determined through a breathing method if you like and uh, it's basically about her like she's still alive even though she's de- decapitated oh. because she's so determined mm. to give birth and she does and her like her, her head is able to whisper thank you that end. would be a hard one to adapt so they didn't make a movie yeah. out of that one yeah. but I, would, I would watch <laughs> that I wonder why yeah, yeah. yeah. but like Shawshank and Sam by Me out of one group of novellas like it's, it's bananas yeah. but yeah I, I was introduced to him as a as an educator rather than as a mm. uh, and you a didn't writer. like his so, so on writing was from 2000 so he was in as you may know he was in a catastrophic car accident in 1999 he was walking along the road some guy drove into him this guy had like a dog in the back seat and he was trying to feed the dog or pet the dog or something yeah. swerved and, and hit Stephen King almost killed him and so you get a slight drop off of productivity mm. shortly after that when he was he couldn't he was recovering he couldn't for more than 40 minutes at a time yeah. in a really bad way and uh, he writes on writing which is this technical you know how to I I've now this is an interesting thing I'm not a writer I'm an editor I find the advice in there very good and I often find myself recommending it to people when I see them making the kind of mistakes he talks about in there but for a writer to say you don't like it but I, I also I'm know. but I'm also a little bollocks and I, <laughs> that's something that I, I'm full of spite and if somebody says to me this this manual on writing written by a man is going to make you a better writer I go fuck yourself no way <laughs> and especially when I was 20 I'm a bit more like a bit, a bit chill, moderately more chill now yeah. but when I was 20 21 in my masters I'm like no what are you talking about 
Because so, what I've always heard about on writing is people would always say, I'm not mad at Stephen King, but on writing. On writing is when you have to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is weird. I should probably go back to it because again, yeah. 21 full of spice. Hey, do you want to know, actually speaking of being a little bollocks, one of my favourite <laughs> bollocks things to do is when so-called, okay, this is going to be like a really, really okay, I'm just going to go with it. When lit bros send you terrible manuscripts and are just rewriting Flann O'Brien for the millionth <sighs> time, I love telling these people, go read Stephen King's Guide to Writing because I think Stephen nothing. King's populist. People hate Stephen yeah. King. People mm. who want to be Flann O'Brien, who want to be Joyce, don't want to hear about what Stephen King has to say. But you're like, Stephen yeah. King has listed out mistakes that you have made and he will tell you how to mm. fix them. And mm. the little bollocks in me loves doing that. That yeah. doesn't happen that often. And I'm always very grateful to read people's work in progress. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I mean, that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The guy who's like, I can't believe you're not reading David Foster Wallace. Why are you oh reading Pet Cemetery again, you loser? Yeah. 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 But I think that I think I I was in a car going to uh, Inishir uh, this summer with uh, three lads um, who had who were all besotted with Stephen King, and I think it was the first time I ever felt like I had missed a literary phenomenon. Ah. I had missed something. I was like, and they're all like, it was Dave Rodney McEwen and Mike uh, Donnelly who are all creative people. They're all creative practitioners in different I would elements. love to be in that car <laughs> it was a fun car I might it get really a... car sick but I think it sounds like a lot of crap <laughs> they started talking with Stephen King and I was kind of like I was not about to be like fucking hate it on writing lads like I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> was, that was not an argument I needed in that car at that mm. moment at like 6 o'clock in the morning uh, but there was this shared awe that I felt and similarly to this buzz here where I'm like oh man maybe I am missing something yeah here's where I am um, nervous because I think I talk about Stephen King in, in a really passionate way because I love him and he means a lot to me and mm. I've read him for years and years and years but he's uh, a problematic fave if you like ah. there <laughs> this is we, we had this chat the last episode yeah. was all your faves are problematic all it's your grand. faves are problematic all, all of our faves are problematic yeah um when I try to talk somebody into reading Stephen King, they might start out by reading Desperation, which is like, it's cash. Let's it's one of the ones I've read. I've read it like five or six. I've read it like when I was like 20, so. It's not good, is it? It's. Except for the bit about the soap. It is scary. Is which it? is what I was, because that's all I was looking for, because that's all I have of Stephen King in my head is. Horror. Horror, yeah. And I think a lot of people think he's a very gory writer and it puts him off. That's And Desperation is quite gory, I think. Mm-hmm. A lot What's of it about? Um, it's about a sheriff who gets taken over by like an alien entity and starts kidnapping people because he needs new hosts. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it keeps all these people trapped yeah. in a building and they all have in to... In like escape. a small western town and they have to drive into a mine pit at the end and stuff. It's... it's well, it's pulpy. What, what, it's, what's good yeah. about it, where he is good, is on the practical problems around escaping. So there's a kid who is who has to escape between some bars... So he gets the so he gets completely naked. He's like eleven, I think. Mm. Soaps himself up and slips <gasps> through the bars. And he, it's really he has to squeeze his head through at the oh. end. And for pages afterwards, his head is really sore. Oh, and yeah. I love this about the detail. King, the detail. The he writes practical. bodies very well. Yeah, and about things that happen to bodies and how things hurt and what happens to bodies so and things happen to them. He's got this yeah. amazing short story. Amazing. He's got this short story I love, um, mm. so petty, called Dolan's Cadillac. And it's about a man who wants revenge on the gangster who killed his wife. So he, um, it's very ornate and he does the maths and he, he's a teacher. He goes, he talks to a maths teacher to get um, help with the maths on this. But he digs a hole in the road. So he blocks off the road. There's like a turn blocks off a section of the road and spends days digging and digging this area where he knows Dolan will drive. So the idea is he's going to create a little ramp and that he'll open up the road, Dolan will drive his Cadillac and he will go right down Mm. into the hole. 
but you have the, uh, the what's the, the problem is what if it goes down nose first and it's at an angle that's oh my god it's on mats yeah you want it to go down flat and so on and how do you make sure he'll drive by that night and he describes um, the main character like going home to have a bath and that his hands are very blistered and his back is sore and he gets into the bath and I think of that every time I have a bath literally every time I have wow. a bath and I read that and I was like I don't know 14 or something but he's really good on on breakdown of bodies as you say yeah. and um, arthritis oh yes. in Pet cemetery, yeah and um, needful things I okay. remember reading needful things and having this like fear of getting arthritis <laughs> as a teenager See, he I feel it like I've read it because I read the summary of it yesterday and I was like I've definitely read this book because I remember specifically the arthritis stuff <clears throat> and how vivid that was but I don't remember I have no memory of reading the book but just I have a memory of reading a very vivid good script of arthritis by Stephen King yeah and it's Pet Cemetery it's a secondary character so but so it must be needful things but yeah, just the, the pain and the the non-movement it's and in everything Dark else. Tower as well okay yeah yeah when the characters mm. gets what they call it the dry twist mm. oh. in Midworld yeah and you use cat oil to like to help ease it but um Sarah's buying off the dark I'm tower being, I'm being converted <laughs> quite sharply as this is happening yeah <laughs> well yeah what I was going to say was and I try to convert people and they read something and they're like gosh his um dialogue is horrible and he has loads of folky expressions and um, there's an interesting I think conversation about um, how he writes race and whether or not he's racist and I would say that I don't think he is I I certainly don't think he intends to be but Mm. in his earlier writing he has this problem where he can't write non-white characters uh, as people and so the most famous example is The Stand which is from 1978 so um this is the the most of the world's population is wiped out by a flu called Captain Trips. And this is like literally today I texted my sister and I said, I think I have Captain Trips. And she was like, <laughs> yeah, probably. You know, um, so everybody's Amazing. wiped Sorry. out by this horrible flu. And the book opens with the, the lab, the facility where the virus escapes. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to lock it all down and there's a delay and this one security guard decides, fuck it, and he runs and he drives and he gets his wife in the car and they drive and drive and drive. And this is the start of the story is when we find their their bodies, basically. He's dying and she's dead and the kid is dead. And then everybody catches Captain Trips and everybody dies. And you've got a handful of people left and they all have these dreams and they all go to the same place in Colorado. Or they all, they all gather in various places to get to this woman, this spiritual leader called Mother Abigail. And she's going to tell them what to do. And this is, she's a really badly written character because she's your sort of, you know, this trope of the, what do you call it? The magical, magical Negro. Negro. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. She's folksy. She's got a very good backstory. I think it, uh, to me, it read pretty, it read pretty well in that it's describing America in a time, you know, he's, he's, see, he's sensitive to civil rights, but um, she, you know, becomes this elderly wise woman and you sort of get the impression that by dint of her race, she's got this like, this magical and he's been criticised for it and he has said it was a um, a sort of a fantasy on his part a sort of a try, trying to repair damage sort of gesture you know and that's yeah that's um, sort of the, the path to help out paved the best intentions kind of thing I always think of the oracle in the matrix who is this like like oh fantastic God, old exactly. black woman yeah. but Same she's thing, yeah. she's fucking amazing and you're like that, I want that job that's my job you know that's who I want to be but then you're also like oh God she's a all not, like you can't just like it's an extreme 
you yeah, know, and yeah. it doesn't really. Yeah, there's there's no humanity in it. There's no humanity. Yeah. But he he has gone on to write. I mean, in, like really recently, he's written black characters who just oh my god, like the dialogue's terrible. It just oh. makes you cringe. Mm. So I'm just really worried people would pick this up and go, "What the fuck have you told me?" <laughs> you know. Um, but to stand just to give you the rest of the, the context, you you have a whole other group of people gathering in Las Vegas. And you sort of have goodies versus baddies. The two groups are in conflict. And um, they're led by a guy called Randall Flagg. And that character, he's the antagonist in The Stand, The Dark Tower, um, Eyes of the Dragon, and what's the big one that I'm leaving out? It'll come to me. Anyway, um, he's a sort of a recurring baddie. But the interesting so thing. So does he exist in all of Stephen King's worlds? Is he sort of this trap? Yeah. He's like a like a meta villain, like who yeah. just exists in other stories. Yeah, he moves does in and out of them. He's an agent of chaos, and in some yeah. versions he's a Satan, and in some versions he's just an immortal wizard um, who just wants to cause trouble. There's a, there's a higher sort of ranking bad guy as well, the the Crimson King, and he's a sort of spider god. So all of Stephen King's work work exists in the same. In, in a universe that's yeah. like yeah, the macro I think that's things people don't realise yeah. about him I'm, ha- starting, I'm, is, I'm losing my mind just, right they're, not just, <laughs> so they're not just standalone horror novels it's, it's a huge universe and the Dark Tower is like the centre of it all uh, so yeah. like in it somebody will talk about a guy who beat his wife to death and now he's doing time in Shawshank and Shut Mike up. Hanlon the librarian in <laughs> it we don't know what happens to him we're really worried about him but spoiler alert he is the boss of somebody in the insomnia novel and he's still there and the woman who works in the battered women's shelter in insomnia ends up in rose matter and i didn't i did not know you were allowed to do this <laughs> yeah. yeah and um oh god this is an awful thing okay so eyes of the dragon 1983 this is a fantastic fantasy novel and it's like the king, the ailing king and his two sons, the really good smart son and the kind of not great son and the king has this assistant wizard called Flag. Flag has been um, has been advising kings for four generations. He's mm-hmm. lived there for four generations and he's, so he's, whatever, he's around for 70 years and he's only aged 10 and he basically kills the king and finagles it. So the weaker son becomes the new king. And um, Peter, the good son, ends up in a tower. And he's got this like little doll's house that used to be his mother's. And it's got a tiny loom that works, right? And every day they bring him his dinner and they give him a linen napkin. And there's a backstory about why there's so many napkins. Like, it's very ornate. But he gradually weaves a tiny rope with the loom. So it's a bit like Shawshank in that way. You know, but the like... Picking away and the chipping yeah. away. Chipping away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like gradually, you, you build a way to escape. Yeah. But there's two guys who come, like, to help save him. And they have a confrontation. They, 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 go, off and, they, they go off and search a flag. And it's implied there's going to be confrontation. And the book ends and... It's one of those good prevails kind of books, but we don't know what happened to the two guys, but you sort of get the sense that they're valiant and they're going to go and vanquish this flag fella. Mm. But in Dark Tower, like in a throwaway remark, Flag mentions two kids who came to fight him and he, he turned them into dogs. And that's it. And you're reading that. And you might just go, oh, I wonder who that is. Or if you read Eyes the Dragon when you're only a child, you're like, no! 
they were so good you know and one of them hated turnips and there was this whole bit where they had to spend the night in a barn full of turnips and you're like it's just so throwaway it's devastating mm. like my all time favourite notion that I'm, I'll never get around to is to have a big wall chart and all map of the all this yeah. out because it's, it's really ornate so it's all interconnected in a really stressful way that's great though what, how, what an amazing reward for people who go on the journey with him mm. you know what an amazing thing to happen that years later you would read a book and realise that the two kids that you read about as a child have had something happen to them like what an amazing way to invite people into the world that you build and reward them for their like for coming with you for yeah. thanking them mm. you know because that's what things like that are oh, Easter eggs okay, they're thank right. you so speaking of thanking the reader that's a really good way of putting it right so in it so the story behind it is you got seven kids they are all losers they're all being bullied and they form a little group they call themselves the losers club you know I guess today we would call it an echo chamber and, uh, <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> nice Twitter I heard it called this week I was like oh nice it's called Twitter. nice Twitter oh, uh, nice so Twitter. there is a monster in Derry, Maine every 27 years it surfaces from its lair and it kills kids and so this is about the uh, the fifties when the monster emerges and it's killing kids and this group of kids band together uh, against it and they make a pact that if it comes back they will all return to Derry. So the story is layered on itself. Um, it's th- it's told from the point of view of the kids then and the adults now. Whoa. It opens with the adults calling each other up we have to go back because one of them stayed behind and he remembers none of the rest of them remember because it's like childhood you know you forget everything and everything's so. a bit like touch and go and maybe it happened maybe it didn't happen oh sure we're only playing we're only messing that kind of thing did like, we like really do a blood you know ah no blood. we didn't like, and then it's yeah. like oh but the scar the scar is coming back up oh my god oh. I had a bike I forgot about the bike I loved the bike you know and you're reading this and you're thinking Jesus I had a bike you know? yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did a blood pack once right? yeah. so, um, so you, you fall madly in love with the children I just think the children are brilliant in this They're they're great, great characters. And um, in his more recent novel, 112263, that came out in 2011, that's the one about JFK. Mm. So it's about a guy who can who travels back in time and he wants to stop the murder of JFK. But he has to go all the way, he has to go back into the 50s and work his way up to 1963. It's The time travel rules are hilarious in it. But he goes through Derry, Maine and he <gasps> hear, people tell him like there's been child murders and stuff and like Derry's a bad place. But he sees two kids and you realise that it's Beverly and Richie from It. And there's this great scene where Jake just looks and they're just like really cute kids and he goes off and he looks over his shoulder at them and they're still there and they're like dancing or something. And it's just like little gesture Stephen King makes like, I, I know you love them. I love them too. I miss them too. Look, they're mm. still there. Look back there. They are. And that's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And It is very much a book about nostalgia. It's about the great monster in It, you know, <laughs> this is like so naff. This is like my, my story time voice. Um, the, the real monster is aging and death <laughs> and the death of your childhood. But like really the real um, space spider that wants to drain the life out of you is, is not um, an eldritch horror that lives in a drain, but it is that one day you grow up and you forget how brave you were and how intent you were on doing mm. things. So it's, um, it's a very clever story about childhood. The children have more magic because they're more earnest they're more sincere the adults forget things and it's really weird to read this again I I read it um, over the summer reading it as an adult is a really different experience from reading it as a kid so I read it as a kid wanting to scare the daylights out of myself Mm. so it's got um, flying leeches got a leper it's got obviously the big scary clown it's got the spider the wolfman the mummy um, various other vagrant dead and um, the children grow up 
and then you read it as an adult and all the stuff about the adults grappling with that loss of memory makes a ton more sense now. I'm in my 30s, mm. you know, and yeah. I, 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 the nostalgia is really laid on really thick. Yeah, like you have other shit going on now when you're in your 30s. Yeah. The kids don't. Kids, just, they can focus on that for six weeks. That's <laughs> <laughs> an adult can't. Yeah, I'm like, I've got 10 minutes. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very clever. It opens with little Georgie Denbro. George is six and he wants to um, he wants to run his uh, boat down the, the it's raining really heavily in Derry he wants to put his boat on, just on the what do you call it the, the gutter yeah. and yeah. follow it along and he's got a little rain slicker little yellow mm. and um, his brother Bill is in bed with the flu but Bill helps him he, he paints it with like paraffin and stuff to make it watertight but he tells Georgie you have to go down to the cellar and get the stuff come on Georgie grow up you know, and Georgie hates going down to the cellar and it's dark, but he won't turn on the light because he's afraid if he turns on the light, something will touch his hand. So he, it's even worse going around in the dark. But he's, you know, he's fine. He gets the stuff, fixes it up. So he's chasing the boat. And what's so clever about it is that um, the book opens with us following the boat along the water. So we're Georgie you know, in that moment and you're following it along and then, oh no, the boat goes down into the storm drain. You know, metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is where we fucking start. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, he looks down into the hole in the storm drain and he sees a pair of yellow eyes and then, oh, it's not, they're not yellow eyes, they're blue. They're blue like his mother's and it's a clown telling him to, to come in and he gets the smell of the circus. He gets the smell of like vinegar and peanuts and like animal dung but there's also a weird sour smell underneath that, a bad smell. And the clown is saying, do you want a balloon? Don't you want a balloon, Georgie? And George is saying, my dad says I shouldn't talk to strangers. And, the George, and then the, the clown tells him, we're not strangers. Your name is George and I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Key wrecked. So I guess so, says George. So he leans in and the clown grabs his arm, pulls him, sort of sucks him up against the edge of the pavement and... Um, changes into a different form that is so terrifying um, George's mind just sort of Business, just yeah. his, his, his sanity is stripped away in that moment and he dies of fright and sort of his arm is ripped off and he like basically is found and they're going oh, this kid bled to death so that's, that's the start and we then hear of the I'm so excited, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. poor George why right? did nobody tell me this is what this is about like this is amazing so George's older brother, Bill, yeah. is picked on because he's got a stutter. And then Aww. there's Richie, who's just this dorky kid who keeps making jokes and everybody just finds him really annoying. You've got Mike Hanlon and he goes to a different school because his family are Baptist. And because he's black, he gets a lot of racist abuse. And you got got um, Beverly Marsh and she's, um, she's poor, she's from a really shitty part of town. And so she's a bit isolated and she's got like bad clothes and stuff. Um, but she's creative and has done stuff with them. And she's like the best at the slingshot and stuff. She's... Uh, she's a real badass. And you got um, Ben Hanscom. Ben is like really overweight, so it really picks on him for being fat. And Eddie Kasprak. I love Eddie. He's small, he's weak, he's got as- asthma. Mm. And his mother keeps telling him, no, no, you're sick. Don't go out. And, no, no, you're asthma and stay in. And it turns out he's not sick. He doesn't have asthma. The, the thing, the prescription he's been picking up every week is just for water with a little bit of camphor in it because his mother, it turns out, has much mm. Yeah. Um, he has to realise he's not really sick. Ben has to realise that he's so much more than just this like fat bullied kid and so on. They, they have to all band come together. Come through their, their so situations. Yeah. They, they all come together. Oh, and then Stan, of course, Stan Uris, and he's like sensible, logical kid. And he's the one who has the hardest time coming to terms with the fact that it might be a monster mm. that sometimes... So the, the monster manifests differently for everyone. So for some of them, it's a clown. For some of them, it's a leper. 
Um, for some of them, it's the dead bodies of other victims and stuff. And they, they all have to kind of come together. But um, you get the, it opens with sort of that and the adults at the same time. The adults being like, we all have to, we all have to go back. And the first thing that happens is Stan, on hearing this, slits his wrists and in blood writes on the bathroom wall, it. Like, what a cool third act death to open with. Mm. So you have what I think is this like layering of memory in the beginning. So you sort of know them as adults and they talk about their traumas and then you get the story of them as kids. So you know the trauma's coming, mm-hmm. which is a really good way of kind of reminding you that you can't trust memory and you, you, you can no longer look back on anything without seeing it as a foreshadowing of something that then happened to you. Yeah. And, you know, that a feeling can generically stand in for an entire year in your memory sometimes. And um, you when you see Stan, the kid, you've got this awful sadness because, you know, he's going to grow up and die. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's the premise. <laughs> and then you got like a thousand pages of um, werewolves and mummies. I have never been sold so hard on something in my entire life. Do you reckon? Sarah, yeah. Sarah's clutching the book. <laughs> <to her. laughs> just like, oh my God. It's so scary. So the monster feeds on children because... Because um, they're small and easy to eat, right? <laughs> their fear is more potent because they have un, um, unadulterated um, imaginations. And I think it's the word... It's, yeah. it's Monsters Inc. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, Stephen King in all the movies. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. It's it's yeah. It's the Monsters Inc. thing. So the, the the monster thinks of fear as salting the meat. So here's the interesting thing about it. It is a monster, but it's it's everybody thinks of it as Pennywise the clown from yeah. the excellent. I thought it was like a 250 page scary clown killer clown book. That's why I. That's why yeah. when you handed me this, I was like, what? Yeah. All of this is about clowns. <laughs> yeah. There's even the clown on the front cover of it. Like, Let's talk about yeah. scary clowns for a second. Let's. Yeah, because I think this is the definitive scary clown book. And in the year of our I, Lord 2016, scary clowns like... Uh, Oh, they, they reemerged. The, yeah. They're a thing again. What's yeah. that about? Chaos, I so guess. So where did the st- scary clown start, would you think? Well, isn't it... It's, it's, a, it's a childhood thing. It's, 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 it's a... I mean, it could be the visual element of it. I don't know. For mm. for individuals, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the phenomenon started. Like, like, I think it was wasn't it this? Was it not this? Well, you would. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. And I, you know, to a degree, I think yes. I think um, we have like the jester in Shakespeare, like the fool in King Lear, as like this. But they're also like oracle figures as well, though, aren't oracle, they? Yeah. The that fool, they know too much. The fool is supposed to be fun, but he comes up and says things to Lear that are just no crack. Yeah. And then he disappears, and we think he's been hanged. So that's not you. And then you've Punch and Judy, where mm. that's that's what. 19th well, and century. in the tarot, the hanged man is a is a is like is sort of like has that the fool and the hangman are two cards that are similar in that and neither of which are fucking good news either by the way right. you know yeah yeah that like they're both like they're both foretell like either stalemate which is the hangman who is stupid for having gotten there and, and it often is like portrayed to be like a court jester and then the, then like they're they're harbingers of unfounded information I think isn't that kind yeah. of where they come yeah. from awesome. like historically yeah. because and then, okay, I'm just thinking the, the, the beginning of the scary clown. So then you have like, gradually you have the clown, the white face version of the clown is fairly new mm. as, but it's supposed to be a, f- a figure of fun. But the clown itself's not having any fun. Usually, you know, where he's falling over, isn't he? He's having yeah. a bad time. We're oh, laughing yeah. at him. But uh, Charles Dickens in the Pickwick Papers describes this Grimaldi type clown. And it's a really gruesome description. He's got this big fat bloated body and these little skinny legs. So he's kind of like, like a bloated spider, if you like, mm. and his his um his fingers have the the the, the makeup on them and stuff, and um he might have started that in, in popular fiction maybe, um, mm. 
but it, it did morph into a figure that we're supposed to enjoy but that we don't trust because, because they're a stranger in your home as well like the, child, the, the claim at the children's birthday parties is, is the stranger in yeah. the home well I think um, John now is it John Wayne Gacy or Jeffrey Dahmer I keep mixing these John Wayne Gacy oh, who? Gacy who, who dressed up like yeah. a clown oh, he, was, he, was, Jeffrey Dahmer was, he yeah. was a children's yeah. clown yeah. and so like mm. in the 80s mm. you had all this like idea about stranger danger you did have there was a lot of high profile child abductions in the 70s and 80s in mm. the US that mm. were badly handled and there's a lot of very good documentaries about this like who took Johnny for instance the Johnny Gosh case and in the dark the podcast um, about the Jacob Wetterling case and <clears throat> They are high-profile examples of bad handling of child abduction stories. However, the instance of child abductions were not as high as people tended to think, but there was this obsession with the stranger. And who do you not trust? Somebody who comes to you with a painted face and they're not presenting their true self. You know, this is, I think, why people don't like the Kardashians, like, joking. Whoa, hard, but, but they're on, and they're on Canny Valley. Like, they're in a weird space where yeah. you're like, I don't know what you look like. You're, like, you're... It's cyborg theory as well, where it's, like, complete oh, control yeah. over your presentation so you can completely lie to people. It's, like, it's a it's an inauthentic presentation of hum, of a human. Yeah. So that's... Whoa. Sorry. Psh, yeah. Mind-blowing right now. <laughs> that is like, like, the same yeah. distrust. kids don't know about Grimaldi and stuff, so... No. There is, there is like so, a, a, f- there's an innate, a physical no, thing. Yeah. I think cause like kids. I, sorry, I th- sorry um, I, but I think you make a really good point. Kids don't know the clowns are creepy. If you're George Denbrough and you're six, you don't know clowns are bad. And mm. when he sees it first, when he sees Pennywise, it's a clown. It's a go- so first he sees yellow eyes and he's like, whoa. But then the clown emerges, his eyes change colour and to he's the mother's friendly clown, yeah. right? And so George is like, this is okay. The other kids, what's creepy about the clown is that they see a friendly clown but in the wrong context. He's standing under a bridge. He's standing on top of a frozen lake. He's standing in a storm drain. He's standing, where he shouldn't be. So it's where you shouldn't be. Yeah. So um, this is what I'm really concerned about the new movie that's coming out this year, the new adaptation. That I saw a lot of the, the the press shots of the new Pennywise. He's scary clown version, mm. and I'm hoping that they also have like friendly clown version because that's the one that lures the kids in, yeah. right? Yeah. They've cast quite a young actor for him as well, haven't they? Uh, Bill Skarsgård. Yeah. Oh, Skarsgård. Mm. One of the Skarsgård. One of the yeah. Steve Hansen men. Very beautiful yeah. cheekbones for days, um, which I think is a good choice. Tim Curry, of course, the you know the <gasps> giant clown shoes they must fill was was the original yeah. Pennywise um, in the AMC. God and Tim Curry so good. Like uh, he was good Jesus looking. Man. Jesus, he was so fucking handsome. Like he was. I remember being a kid and being like, you know, obviously seeing the Rocky Horror <laughs> and dropping downhill from there. Right. But, Did you uh, feel when you watched Annie? That you were like, oh. went back recently to look for a gift of Miss Havisham because I was a nanny and I was like, where's Miss Havisham? It's me. <laughs> um, I was like, found myself watching uh, clips from Annie and was like, oh shit, that's, yeah, that's real. Let's see the hot guy. See, I've always found yeah, him quite weird looking. Probably my first time I saw him was Home Alone 2. He's weird looking. But like, he has weird eyes. Yeah, he was in Home Alone 2. Yeah, he's the, um, we talked about this. He's one of the I was this in the first episode. He's the, like, the concierge in a hotel. I have to watch that now. Yeah, yeah. I loved him in Cluedo. I had like full on crush on him in Cluedo. <sighs> but I like, yeah, I, but it's weird looking. We're going to have to do a Cluedo thing. roundtable, by the way. Yeah. Oh. Where we are, well, we, we each take a, a thing and we, we do a live a live clue. I would there really, is an escape room thing in Waterford now, and one of the rooms is a Cluedo room. Oh my God. Oh my God. Just figure out the murder and get out. Yeah. I want that. I want that. Yeah. But yeah, no, but that, that um, he, uh, he was he the clown. He was clown, but he's always taken on these abject roles where you're like, are you sexy? Are you evil? I don't know. I don't know. Which what is are you? brilliant. There's like, this amazing oh. bit like in the in the TV adaptation where he's, and you can find this on YouTube where Pennywise meets Georgie, um, and he's, he's saying to Georgie, there's balloons down here. Don't you want a balloon? And Georgie's oh. like, because he's six. If he'd have been, and this is in the book, if he'd have been a bit older, he would have gone, nah. But he's six. You know, you have yeah. room in your brain for mm. this. And he's like, do they float? 
And Pennywise <sighs> says, yeah, Georgie, they float. They all float down here. And when in in the mo- in the, the when you, if you look at Tim Curry when he does that his face does this oh. weird thing where he kind of it's a sad smile it sort of wavers yeah. and it just looks like he is bringing all of his acting chops to this role yeah. and he looks ridiculous he's standing in a storm drain dressed like a clown and he nails it um yeah i think it, the funny thing is about that miniseries did you see it first time around Mm-mm. it's scary i found it scary anyway when i saw it but that was 1990 so i suppose i was Nine. Uh, so. bab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is just a year before Twin Peaks. That was a great time. TV was great. Oh at my the god! Time. Imagine being ten and seeing Twin Peaks for the first time. Holy shit! Um, that must have been amazing. Yeah, I was just like, this is TV now. TV just oh, gets better and better. I got it as a box set when I was fifteen, and it ruined my life. And all I had was seven <laughs> episodes for like two years. And <laughs> try being fucking like fifteen in the Irish suburbs. Nobody knows what you're talking about. There is no internet. Nobody cares about your weird '90s murder show, Sarah. Like that was <laughs> yeah. that was it. Until like now, it's fucking hip and trendy. And I'm like, yeah, that, thank you. Finally, we can fucking have a chat about this. Um, but yeah, I, 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 there was a turn, obviously, in at, at that particular time in, in television history where like it, something like shifted and more things were possible, especially around the idea of, of horror and things in the suburbs that are bad and stuff like that. I Definitely. Um, I think it... I read something, I wonder, was it the LA Review of Books article I sent you, Alan? Oh, yeah. a, oh my God, the LA, they're amazing. That, that LA Review of Books is unbelievable. It's great. <laughs> it's got a lot of like really snooty articles about Stephen King and why he's terrible. So I would say if you're looking for really good Stephen King essays, there's a terrific uh, website called Insatiable Book Sluts. Ah, I know them. Yeah. Fucking awesome, awesome articles. Very, very good. And they talk about things like, isn't it weird how in the 90s Stephen King wrote a lot of books about battered wives? Right, like Dolores Claiborne, Rose Madder, Insomnia, um, Gerald's Game. God, we didn't even talk about. Do you know about Gerald's Game? Hit me. Okay, so this is very unstructured. This whole conversation. Oh, it's great. No, it's I am like, perfect, yeah. I am bet in. I am like in a different world <laughs> I right now. I should point out before that we're surrounded by balloons at the moment as well. The balloons have to over from the Christmas party. <laughs> it's very. Do they float? These are stuff. Yeah, float. that does happen in yeah. it when they're adults. Like when Mike's oh. in the library, he's like, "It's not real. It's okay." And then like balloons appear. That's the great thing. Your fears <laughs> manifest around you. The thing that you're afraid of. Um, we can we can oh, come back to that. Yeah, but Gerald's game. Really yeah. quickly, Gerald's game, right? Um, Gerald and his wife, Jessie, uh, they're an older couple and the thrill has kind of gone out of the relationship a bit, but they've got a little bit into bondage and that's working well for them. So they go up to their cabin for the weekend and they've been doing it with scarves, but he's like into handcuffs and she's like, I don't know about her. Well, okay. So, you know, they're, they're about to get down to it and she's like, you know, I'm not into it. And he pretends this is part of the role play and she can tell she looks at his they're not a great couple you know she can mm. tell that actually he likes the idea of her not being into it and she's like seriously uh. not into it and he just decides he's going to go for it and she has this what can you do right you're handcuffed to the bed she's handcuffed to the, the headboards so she kicks him in the stomach and kicks him in the groin simultaneously and because he's an older man he has a heart attack oh Jesus collapses and falls off the bed and dies and she is left handcuffed to a bed in a cabin in the middle of nowhere nobody knows where she is and nobody's looking for her and there's a glass of water on the stand but just out of reach like she could grab it with her hands but her hands can't reach her mouth because they're handcuffed what would you do? and then a dog comes in and starts eating the dead body and then she's like screaming at the dog to get out and then she's hallucinating because she's so hungry she's so thirsty and late at night she's just you know the shadows are weird but because it's the middle of nowhere there's a shadow in the corner and she thinks it looks like there's somebody standing there obviously there couldn't be but it looks the shape 
could, could it, it could be like her father, but it's not. It's like a man, except it couldn't be because his knuckles go down past his knees. And I remember reading this like two years ago. I was like, oh, I'm going to read Gerald's game again. I wonder if it's still scary. And I read that bit on the Lewis just as a stranger asked me what time it was. And I fucking jumped out oh. of my skin. <laughs> no. I don't have a fucking watch. <laughs> Get out of my face. Get out of my face. Don't have a phone. Like, yeah. So she then, what happens to Jessie is she has three voices in her head. There is um, Goody Burlingham, which is like the good version of her. The come on now, pull yourself together and be a good wife and be obedient and be all the right. You know that voice in your head, mm. that woman who's telling you to be better. There is uh, her old college roommate, Ruth that she's this really caustic, funny, telling her to look out, out for number one. She's this great, strong character. And then there's, um, I think, Norma, the psychologist that Jessie saw years ago. And these are all facets of her and she has to rescue herself from the situation. I think she's, this, you know, she's in a really misogynistic setup and not an original one person trapped and has to get out and there may be a boogeyman. But I think it's a female-driven story and she has to rescue herself and I think that's something that's... Does she? Um, do, do you want to know? Absolutely. I'm <laughs> horrified. I am like, um, I'm on the edge of my seat. Well, the Should handcuffs were designed for a man so they're kind of big. So she realises what she could do is she could gradually wear away at the flesh on her <sighs> wrists and do what's known in the medical pr- pr- profession as degloving. Ooh. That's an option. Imagine all your... Sorry, I'm just... I'm, I'm I, am so, I am... Oh my God. That's... I can see that. Yeah. Mm. It's really... So it's like, dislocate your thumb, dislocate your thumb. Degloving is something I have never heard of. Yeah, it's a whole thing. That is thing. new. Yeah. That is yeah. fresh. Ooh. Yeah, spoiler alert. Sorry if anybody has Oh no, it. I love it. It's well <laughs> worth a read. But yeah, that's... That's oh, it. That's uh, actually really fucking upsetting. That is so scary. Yeah, it's gross. But what I loved about it was the creature in the corner or the thing in the corner, whatever it is, she calls it the space cowboy. You know, and she's like, she's shouting at it. You're not real. So she realizes she's there. She's waiting to be rescued. And she realizes no one's coming for her. And one of her hallucinations tells her that the space cowboy is going to harvest her bones for his. um, He's got like this treasure chest and stuff. So she, uh, again, I've I've given away most of the ending. She degloves and throws her wedding ring at him and runs out and gets into her car. And she's like driving and she's got this one totally fucked up hand and she's totally naked. And then he's in the backseat of the car, or is he? And um, there's there's more. It goes on. There's a bit more and there's, there's another kind of horrible revelation at the end. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It was a thing that he did. Like Dolores Claiborne then, around the same time. So let me see. Dolores Claiborne is 92. Same year. And that's just a story about a woman who is accused of having murdered her employer and she just tells her story and tells about how her husband died 30 years ago. And there is some supernatural stuff, but not a lot. And it's, it's just, there's not even chapter breaks in that one, is there? It's just one long monologue. One long confessional by Dolores. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people like just pushed against that. They were like, there's no, mm. you know... Because it's weird, he went through this phase of writing full-on monsters, Lovecraftian monsters, like real non-Scooby-Doo endings yeah. monsters like and Desperation and The Regulators as well mm. which is Richard we didn't talk about Richard Bachman oh all, yeah so Richard Bachman is he was so thing. busy he just had to come put a whole other person <laughs> to read books under and Richard Bachman was this person but Desperation and The Regulators have the same characters and the same alien entity possessing someone but totally different story The Regulators is about a kid an autistic kid who um, is creating these western and um, like Power Rangers characters yeah. that are destroying his street and killing everybody but it's all the same characters as Desperation and they broke the covers reference each other and they came out at the same time and stuff 
he just has this like imagination just to burn off it's mad unreal. Yeah, yeah it is unreal it was um, he, he started doing the Bachman stuff in, in the late 70s he had been so successful with Carrie and then Salem's Lot and then The Shining I mean mm. what a follow up um, he wondered if it had been a fluke so he started writing as Richard Bachman to see if he could be as successful mm. under a different name and, and some people say it's because his publisher only wanted to do one book a year and he had such a prolific yeah. output and so he, he got um Unmasked and uh, and I, there was this press release. Richard Bachman has died from cancer of the pseudonym, and oh. then, uh, he did what only Stephen King would do. He wrote a novel called The Dark Half, which is about a writer who has a pseudonym, and he kills off the pseudonym. But guess what? It comes to life, sort of, and it's like this this thing that's haunting him, and it's a it's great. That's I love that one. How actually. could one person write so much? It's suspicious, isn't it? And so very because he writes like Western short stories as well. On top of that, yeah, yeah, what what like? yeah. Yeah, and see, that's the thing as well. You know, you say, oh, I think he's gory. I think he's horror. He hasn't mm. really written horror in a while. Mm. Uh, in, well, Revival, I would say, is that, that's a novel from 2014 that is very Lovecraftian um, in a lot of ways uh, and very like Ray Bradbury, I guess. He's a big fan of Ray Bradbury and that comes across in a lot of his stuff. But he writes sci-fi. He writes crime. The Mr. Mercedes trilogy is all crime stuff and um, hasn't really done horror her mm. as a full-time gig for a while. Yeah. Um, there's something for everyone in Stephen King. <laughs> Lisey's story is about a marriage, actually, yeah. And he's good on married couples. Um, yeah, I find the marriage in um, Pet Cemetery really interesting. Oh, Pet Cemetery. Yeah. I love this one. This is my, I don't know, I keep saying this one's my favourite. I mean, not yeah. Well, what favorite. is your actual favourite? Do, do you have a favourite? I think It. It because is it. Yeah. it is so all-encompassing. It's got every monster you want. It's about how time is a flat circle. It's about how, like we, you know, it's about the end of childhood. It's about, um, it, it encompasses, I think, a thesis he's been building for years, which is that you have to be brave and that good guys don't always win and that what it is to be a bad guy is complicated, mm-hmm. um, but that you have to take a stand. That's yeah. like the ongoing thing. Um I think, I think that's a really amazing thing to do in work because I feel like bravery is one of these things that people just fucking expect from heroes and in books and I, I think it's something that turns me off characters very quickly is like this um, instantaneous authenticity of courage as opposed to people who are like, like courage takes a minute. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that is, uh, I love when I see that. Yeah, I hate yeah. I hate noble ass fucking organically brave people. That yeah. Just like, yeah, fuck you. That's not, that's that's it, lazy. You know, like I think it it can easily fall into like anti-hero stuff. But I think the the progression toward courage is a journey worth going on. Like that, and isn't that's more human than just being born naturally yeah. Gryffindored out of it? Do you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like that that frustrates me really intensely. Um, like. Uh, it, in terms of like virtuous good characters really fuck me off like uh, when I read the Magicians trilogy a couple of years ago and it broke my brain forever the protagonist in that is the worst person in the world he's he's awful he's awful was this Magicians? yeah yeah yeah. he kind of he he gets gets better a bit but in the way that you would expect a person to get better a bit yeah Mm. you know the name of the Wind trilogy is kind of similar as I've read those where he's just 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 good at everything there's like an extended like 50 page section where he just becomes the world's best lover in a <sighs> alternate reality universe with a, oh like a succubus. God. It's like everything that you can be good at, this guy is good, is at. good at or becomes yeah. good at. He's like an amazing musician, amazing sword fighter, amazing magician. Ugh. And it's like they're really good books but at the same time it's just a flaw. 
yeah. built with, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think something Stephen King does is that characters um, who are traumatised and who are hurt by things that happen retain the, the damage mm. for good or ill. Like the wife from Pet Cemetery and yeah. her sister. I read that bit yesterday <gasps> while I was eating about oh what it's God. like having a terminally ill sibling and it's, just, it's so graphic and So Pet visceral. Cemetery, yeah. w- we talk about the... The, yeah. the setup is a lovely family moved to Ludlow. No, it's not Ludlow. That's Cujo. Where do they go? They're in it's, Maine, anyway. They're in Maine. It is is it all set in Maine? Uh, that, that, that's all of the, in the, Maine. the multiverse. Uh, yes, or Castle Rock. Or when King lived in Colorado, he set The Shining in Colorado right. and a bit of The Stand is set there as well. But okay. an largely. awful lot of stuff happens largely mm. in Maine. Cool. Yeah. Um, so a family moved to a lovely house next to a lovely folksy neighbour and... Um, they, uh, well, why don't you describe it? Because I've read it a few times and I'm afraid I'll um, just lead with the So spoiler. at the back of their pop- property, they're, they're right on the edge of like um, a national park. Mm-hmm. And at the back of their property, there's a path. And about a mile on the path, there's a pet cemetery that the town's kids have been tending to and burying their pets in for decades. So... R.I.P. spot. Aww, yeah. Spot. He was an obedient cat, but obedience spelled like crazy uh, and stuff. Um, uh. And then... The family go away for Thanksgiving but the father stays behind with their cat and the cat gets killed and the friendly neighbour goes come with me and they go past the pet cemetery and walk for another three miles past a barrier that he's been told not to go past by in a dream and you have to ignore everything you see on the path and they come to a second cemetery and he buries the cat there goes back cat walks in the next morning oh my god but the cat but it's changed changed so yeah Here's the thing with the pet cemetery and what I absolutely love about this. When he crosses that barrier, the area, it's an ancient Indian burial ground, which is obviously offensive and old fashioned now. But this is um, all of America is an ancient Indian burial ground. Oh, my God, that's so true. The whole Um, continent. This is 1983. And I don't think people had really beaten that idea to death yet. But he doesn't call it ancient Indian burial ground. They say this land was owned by the Mi'kmaq Indians. And this is accurate for that area of Maine. That was the Native American uh, tribe there. And the Mi'kmaqs had a belief uh, which you'll probably have heard of this in a monster called the Wendigo. And this is yeah. this is common in a lot of Native American yeah, folklore. The Wendigo is a monster that if it touches you, turns you into a cannibal. There's a very good episode of the Lore podcast where he talks about cannibalism and he mentions the Wendigo. So when Lewis crosses over the barrier, he's told just go straight and don't look at it and don't touch anything. But something enormous passes him. And you've got this awful moment where you're like, is that the Wendigo? Is it going to touch him? And what's I what I think is great, I, I heard a conference paper about this a few years ago. Some guy was saying this is like a really good example of the white man encroaching on land that is not his, that he doesn't belong in. Like mm. he's crossing a literal barrier. barrier. And when you go in there and you start fucking with things that don't belong to you that are not, you know, yours, you, you're yeah. not yours, then you, 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 you reap that. And that the, the fruits of your labour are... Uh, soured and and, um, and um, I love that it, idea of that, that this is one of my favourite things in urban legends specifically like the ones you kind of tell each other as children and to mm-hmm. deliberately to frighten the, the only purpose is to frighten the <laughs> shit out of each other and to sp- yeah. like I uh, the idea that when you're somewhere that you're not meant to be that when you've somehow broken through to somewhere else don't look at anything don't talk to anything yes. just keep walking forward that is the scariest instruction that you can receive. That is terrifying. Don't look at anything. There'll be someone next to you. Don't look at them. Don't talk to them. Like my, one of my favorite. Um, That's really good. I love recent that. Yeah, urban yeah. legends that have kind of come to my uh, the, the elevator game. 
uh, there's an episode oh, of Tannis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dave Rudin's obsessed with it. We're going to yeah. find somewhere we can do it. There's an, I, don't a, I actually don't think there's a building tall enough in Ireland to do it in. Yeah. But it's in, it's in an episode of Tannis, which is like a, a mm. weird lore kind of uh, like all uh, conspiracy theories come to life type podcast. And uh, oh I really enjoy it. Yeah. Fiction. Oh, yeah. I, re- I really oh, enjoy I'm it. On it. It's, it's, really yeah, it's yeah. bananas. It's brilliant. But one of the pieces of um, like the, the urban legend they talk about is this elevator game which kind of spawns from this uh, de- this really unfortunate death that happened in the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles in 2011 a young woman was like found dead in a water tank above the hotel this is real and the last fo- the last time she was seen was in like a CCTV footage of her in a lift and she's fucking around with the buns. And that's the last time she was seen. You can actually watch the CCTV footage on YouTube if you're that if you're that grim, which you might be. I'm not telling anyone anyone's names, but you can find it if you're looking for it. But uh, God love her. And um, this urban legend sort of spawned from that, that you can somehow pass through to another world via an elevator because elevators are liminal spaces. They're not, re- they're between worlds. They're places oh that you're not, you're not really meant to be. Uh, they're things that we shouldn't really have, that the elevator is in some way a gate okay this is and sorry to interrupt you this is why you have to read it because it the monster lives in a space between universes these liminal spaces are terrifying right he lives in a lift it all makes so much sense now like these broken little tiny shards between like they're not big they're just small and you shouldn't be there and we shouldn't have them so if you'd visit a especially somewhere like a hotel where all the floors are identical I spent two weeks running through hotels on a tour last year uh, two two years ago and uh, hotels are fucking terrifying because they're all identical and all the floors are identical so you can get lost really easily Mm -hmm. and there are definitely moments you have in hotels where you feel like you can just go on forever so if you're in a hotel more than 15 floors you can play this game where you visit a series of floors in a very particular order and eventually you visit a floor where the lights are all off and you'll just land on that floor and you'll know when you're there and uh, at one point maybe the floor before that a woman will get in the lift next to you oh Jesus <laughs> and don't look at her and don't talk to her oh my nerves don't look at her and don't talk to her okay so you're, you can walk out into this other other room or this other floor where things are dark and that's you've broken you've broken it you're somewhere else you're in the other place and there are lots of like details that you read about. Like if there's windows, you'll be able to see a darkened landscape and the only light will be a red cross like coming in through the window in the distance, like hanging in the sky in place of a the sun. There'll be like this red cross and you can walk through the corridor and you can you can go as far as you like and the woman will follow you, but don't look at her and don't talk to her. <laughs> and you can go, you can leave and you can go back down. Uh, but if you talk to her, she'll follow you. And you have to press the buttons in a certain order to escape. Oh my god! And, this uh, sounds incredibly it's a proper, stressful. It's a proper yeah. like it's it's full on urban legend shit. Yeah. Like it's real. I have to say, like I don't think um, books and scary movies scare me anymore. I think I'm I'm kind of immune I'm to it. I'm always looking to be scared. Man. I'm always looking to be scared, and nothing really scares me. But doing stuff like that, I'm like, doing no stuff. What yeah. are you doing? Stuff? Not in a million years. Like, do you ever see Candyman? Yeah. yeah. So every time, every time. My boyfriend will jokingly start <laughs> saying it into the. I like, don't even. Don't it's not do even. It. Don't do it. And I'm like, I think I'm a sensible person, and I don't believe in things. But I'm actually. But there's risks you don't want to take. <laughs> right. You look don't, straight ahead. Don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to anybody. Yeah. yeah. My nerves are a bit yeah, shot yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about elevators being like strange spaces, have you been to Empire State Building? No. Because you go up. The elevator's enclosed in there, and you go up the first ninety floors in about forty seconds. Sorry, ninety. Did you say nine zero? Nine zero. In about 40 seconds. Under no circumstances. Like you, you don't <laughs> feel it. You feel your ears pop twice. Oh. But it happens so quickly and then you step out and you go up another 10 floors in another elevator. But Gross. there's no sense that you've risen. So you step out and suddenly... The world's different. Suddenly you're like there instead of where you were. Oh. But you have no sense of having travelled that distance yourself. 
It's really That's weird. That's making me feel a little nauseated. Yeah. Like a lot of curse it's, it's really weird. There are things that should... Not that they're... Th- and, and the elevator shaft is the first thing that people build when they build places. You live near enough for me. You've, you've probably seen down by the docks. Yeah. The elevator shafts go up first. They're like these huge spindles coming out of the fucking mm. <laughs> the landscape. And you're like... I mean, Kerry, we're walking home uh, down to Ringsend Road and going, what the fuck are they? They're really skinny buildings. That's not an office, is it? Nah, it's just the elevator shaft. Like that's what you build first. That's so creepy. That's so scary. But yeah, no. But onto the onto the pet cemetery though. Like that, the idea of cra- like I I genuinely lifted out of my chair and like and then they bring them to a second cemetery. I was like, no. <laughs> and it's really yes, the ground is really hard. And so, so he's really sore from digging. Mm. And there's a great line in the book: "The soil of a man's heart is stonier." <sighs> I think the other great line from that book is "Sometimes dead is better." Yeah. Because what it's about really is if somebody told you something terrible. Um, would you, would you do it anyway? And what if you did it and it was a terrible secret you had? Would you tell the secret to someone knowing that they would be similarly endangered because we have that compulsion to, mm. to pass it on? Because why Viral did the neighbor why did the neighbor tell him to go and bury the cat in the pet cemetery? You know, because he was compelled to pass it on. You don't realize yeah. that at first, you know. And this is the cat is only the beginning of it. Obviously, it gets much worse. Mm. Um, but complicit horror is fantastic. Like the horror of like a shared madness. Like what did you called it something earlier on when we were talking about um, uh, madness being catching? Yeah, what before was we, it? Before we hit record, we were talking about catching. Like, we were catching talking madness. about. Oh Jesus! Is it called something like mimetic epidemiology? The idea that madness is something that you catch from an ex- from a from a finite experience. And yeah, you can pass mad- on. yeah. I, I'm sorry, I can't think of the right term, and I might just be making random stuff up. But yeah, there, there I like is, that phrase. Anyway. There is an interesting yeah. concept in madness being a shared thing, mm. and that it's a, a, a like a mental virus, and that ideas make it pop up, and it sort of uh, speaks to our lack of understanding around mental illness. That, Certainly, you know, we still mm. imbue it with like supernatural. Um, terminology because we don't know but you do feel like there's chemical imbalances and what have you but there's also the places your imagination can take you over which you have no control yeah and then do you share that do you like if if it's if it was a thing that you could share would you share it and it's the same with horror that the knowledge of horrors like the being like being like I mean everyone has kids so, you know someone finds a dead bird and takes everyone to look at the dead bird ooh yeah. you know the premise of the body so it's yeah. a bunch of kids who say I heard there's a dead body we have to walk along the railroad <gasps> oh, tracks for X many months yeah yeah that's what go. happens yeah so but like, like let's so, all go look at the dead body and even though you know it's wrong even though you know you shouldn't yeah. you're still doing it because you don't want to go through it alone mm-hmm. and that which is connected to the like don't talk to anyone walk straight forward nobody wants to not talk to anybody and walk straight forward that's the most terrifying thing bringing other people with you makes you at least feel like you're not like a a single like exist like being alone with a secret is the worst like the character in Pet Sembler says that Judd the neighbour he says I he comes up with a lot of reasons said I told you that the actual reason is I had to I had to bring you that's the only actual reason why I brought yeah, you. Yeah, Judd's a good guy. Yeah. You don't, you don't regret, or not. You, you don't blame him. You don't blame him, yeah. yeah. You're just like, he had to do it. You yeah. Know? Lewis could have pulled himself together. He's a man of science, for God's sake. Mm. But Tell me this. What do you think of the idea that, at the, like, you know, you were saying earlier on that Stephen King has gone through, like, a resurgence in that he's having these adaptations being brought out of the Dark Terror and, and, uh, and It, like, this year, both this year, are they? So, yeah, so this year we have It... In, uh, I think, September that's coming out. That's the first of a two-movie adaptation. Right. We have... Um, I made a note here somewhere, let me see, because there's a handful of them. The TV series of Mr. Mercedes. They were going to make a movie, but they've, they've made a TV series instead with Brendan Gleeson, hey. which should be mm. cool. Um, Dark Tower is supposedly coming out in July, but don't hold your breath because there was a lot of, like... 
press in Empire magazine a couple of months back and then no teaser trailer and no press and everything seemed to have dropped off the map and they yeah. were talking <clears> about <throat> February 2017 and now it's been changed to July and Sony it's, aren't talking it's about like it. Watchmen where just for years everybody's oh, the film's coming and then it's gone but in terms of Dark Tower you got um, Matthew McConaughey playing the man in all black alright 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 <laughs> which is perfect so the man in black is Randall Flagg but they don't have the <gasps> rights to call him Randall Flagg oh, movie because he's been Randall Flagg in the Stand miniseries. Oh, it's so unfortunate um, that like that the that mo- movie rules destroy that mythos. Yeah, then, don't but he's, he is called the Man in Black. To be fair to Randall Flagg, the character he's he's got like a bunch of names. So okay. Man in Black is one of them. So it's not like the worst. But I think Idris Elba as the gunslinger sounds really cool, and Matthew McConaughey is the baddie sounds awesome. So that's going to be July. Revival is a twenty, I want to say fourteen novel, and I think Russell Crowe is going to be. Um, the the preacher in that so it's a uh, preacher really charismatic and then his wife dies horribly uh. and then the little boy grows up and years later finds him and the guy is now like um, uh, an evangelist at sort of um, circus sideshows and he cures people with special electricity amazing yeah it's actually class um, what else have we got Gerald's Game is going to be made into a movie with Carla Gugino oh yeah uh? So you tell me more. <laughs> That's <laughs> all I'm, I know. I'm in a new world. But yeah. the um, well, there was Stranger Things last year as well, which is it is it. I never know what it's about. That's what Stranger yeah, Things is. It, yeah, it is exactly so yeah. interesting. Well, but like he, he's that the lot of the the the, the talk back to uh, Stranger Things was Stephen King related, and as somebody who mm. again is. So I'm stepping into a whole new plane of existence during this conversation alone. <laughs> I'm like, this is, I am about to embark on an awesome journey. But I, uh, I saw mostly Lynch in Stranger Things. I saw mm. a lot of very, uh, uh, very um, sort of sanitized David Lynch stuff mm-hmm. when I was watching And there's it. a lot of Spielberg. Yeah, I saw oh, like a, Spielberg. Like a lot comparison of to... Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. the great nostalgia machine, but I think it I think it carries something of its own. I know. Well, interesting. Disagree, disagree thing I, I think is interesting, but probably nobody else does. But the, the Duffer Brothers wanted to make the adaptation of it, and they weren't well enough known, and they were turned oh. down. And they did Stranger Things, mm. and in a way, it's like da See what we could have done. Yeah. Greatest work of and fiction. Of course, Stranger Things. The typeface is the same typeface that um, Stephen King's books had in the eighties, mm. uh-huh. and there's many, many nods to like. Obviously, you have a bunch of kids who all bandied together to try and um, fight against a monster. And what so age on. is Stephen King? He was born in nineteen forty-seven. Okay, yeah. so he's still kind of youngish. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's you know, 21st century young. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So we're not. So I'm just like I'm on. I am on. I am on the watch. Well, in terms of who's dying now, he is in the death zone of 50s and 60s. Okay. Shit. So, well, yeah. but he, was he ever like into heroin? Oh my God. Oh, he had a massive Was he into heroin? <laughs> huge, huge addiction problem. Like absolute oh. dirt bird. Like all drinking, all smoking, cocaine, snorting, the whole lot. He says he has no memory of writing Cujo. Cujo is the one, of course, with the dog. Um, so that's 1983, I want to say. He, so this is, and here's a great book about American materialism and about the American family tearing itself apart from the inside, you know, as manifested by the dog. Now, it's not their dog, but it's a family. They're falling apart. All sorts of things happen to help us arrive at a scenario where you have a woman in a car with her son. She can't get out of the car because there's this massive St. Bernard trying to kill them. The dog has rabies slash is haunted. Combo, yeah. um, and it, the, the whole book is just this woman trapped in a car, and she's like, "They're thirsty. It's hot. The dog is really strong. He's huge, and um, it's it's a really good book. I loved it as a kid. I loved the description of the marital breakdown in the beginning. I thought it was really um, convincing. 
But he's but no like, memory of writing it. He has no memory of writing it at all because who employs so these writers? This is my question. <laughs> Every so often I hear these glamorous stories and I'm but like, you know, his, his case was he was just so off his tits. He was yeah. just out of it. So like, here's an interesting thing. Like that that came out. Um, that was 83 and that was when he also wrote so he did The Eyes of the Dragon in 84 it's the one I was telling you about with the wizards and all and that was like a yeah. um, fantasy thing his readers hated Eyes of the Dragon and like a lot of the critics liked it they said this is one of the more elegant things that he's written but fans were like this is not horror who do you think you are so what did he write immediately afterward immediately after being told by his fans you can only write one type of book what did he write? Misery Whoa! <laughs> which is about him, an author who has written Yo. a series and then he's he's in a horrible accident and he is held captive by a fan who says you need to stop writing that new crap you think you want to write and you need to sit here and you need to write and I'm going to break your legs using a, a mallet on a wooden plinth I'll never forget seeing that I will never what a brilliant forget adaptation. seeing Misery I saw that way too young <laughs> and uh, it's one of my mom's favourite movies yeah. and um, uh, I was the first time I ever saw a writer on screen Right, and I uh, don't. I don't know what about that said to me <laughs> that job, but um, <laughs> but I remember being so frightened. It was also one of the first films I feel that I had seen where there was only like two actors. Right, it shouldn't work. It's really it's spare. So, it's so static. Yeah, I was two like a child. I was a, a child when I saw that. <laughs> I should not have seen that film. You should not have seen that. Uh, but it really, like, I feel like the colours of it, really, like the, the really mm-hmm. muted, grey, cold greys and blues of it, like, really kind of. God, what an amazing premise! Perfect. I mean, so it's both yeah. writing against fans who are telling him you can only write one way. And that's something he's had to contend with in his career, that people don't take him seriously. People object. God, is he on Twitter? Um, <laughs> I hope he, he, he is. He is he's on, Twitter. on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. He, he posts pictures of his dog, Molly, a.k.a. Aww. the thing of evil. Aww. She's a corgi. Um, <gasps> but he um, he won um, great. distinguished medal. Of art. He, he won a medal in 2003 for writing and Bias. critic Tobias Wolf was it, said that this was just an example of society like falling apart, or the, the, the idiocy of society nowadays mm. that somebody should give a, you know, a, the writer of Penny Dreadfuls an award. Um, so he's always been working against type and people push against him. So that's what Misery was about. But also it's about addiction because it's about how you are trying to break out of a cycle, but you're trapped in it. So Annie mm-hmm. can represent addiction, the, the nurse Annie Wilkes, you know, telling yeah, you yeah. want to be something else, but this is what you are. This is you what know, you are. I am literally going you're to... You're hobbled hobble. by it. Yeah, and yeah. the funny thing is, so in the movie, there's an amazing hobbling scene. In mm-hmm. the book, she actually takes the foot off. She cuts his foot off. And I, I'll never forget this. I read this when I was too young. She cuts his foot off and she's carrying it out the room. And he's like in a daze and he's lying there and he's in shock, but he's looking at his foot as it goes out the room. And he's looking at a scar on his foot from when he stood on a piece of glass in a beach on a beach when he was a kid I thought like what a great detail I really believed his foot had been cut yeah (laughs) because that was somebody's foot that was a detailed real foot so good so oh like what a fuck you to write to someone you know, misery. There you go, and that, and that's one of the few Stephen King books that has a very successful adaptation. I think there's a lot oh, of adaptations, yeah. and most of them are bad. I, I guess I never realised, and this sounds like a really stupid thing to say. Every time you name a new book, I'm like that one, and he wrote that one, yeah. and he wrote he wrote like he wrote all the books. All he writes so things. widely across every single genre. He must really love it. Yeah, and I would think like you could 
you could match a Stephen King book to everything. I think he predicted Donald Trump in The Dead Zone. The Dead Zone is about a guy with an uncanny ability for always winning the Wheel of Fortune at the local <gasps> fair or whatever. And he's madly in love and then he's in a horrible accident and he wakes up. He's been in a coma for like, I think, three years and he wakes up and his girlfriend's moved on. She's married somebody else. I mean, he wakes up finishing the last thought that he had before he was knocked out and for him nothing's changed but suddenly he has to adjust to everything but he's now got this psychic ability and he can see the future and there is this character this really sleazy guy um, who is running for office and he they meet and Johnny touches his hand and he has a flash memory uh, vision of this guy running for president and being responsible for nuclear war and disasters. And I'm telling you, Stilson, the guy, is Donald Trump. He's this arrogant guy strutting around the place. There's this like press photo op where he wears a hard hat at a jaunty angle, which, I mean, if he'd have worn a red hat with <laughs> yeah. Make America Great Again, it would be more done. It's interesting that you should say that because earlier on, um, uh, we had Ron McDermott in the studio talking about the never-ending story and she was just like... And here's and here's my Trump analogy. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's hey. talk about how this speaks today. But it was. But she was right. It was very accurate. And I feel like what's happening culturally at the moment. It feels like fiction has been, like in big works of sci- science fiction and fantasy have been predicting this moment for us. You yeah. Know? Um. I think. I think. Don, um. Stephen King's very good like that, that you think you're reading scary books. As For me, I thought I was just reading scary books that I liked, but they were really shaping my politics because yeah. the women in his books are strong characters. He writes um, villains very well. They are not just villains. They are people who honestly think they're right. Like Carrie White's mother, she's religious. She's following the letter of this thing that mm-hmm. she believes in. It has to mean something to her, you know. You, you have like more um, sort of straight evil but you you also have this sort of the problem that evil thinks it's right um and so in under the dome this really terrible massive book um that came out i want to say like 3 years ago 2009 not 3 years ago um it's about um it's it's the simpsons movie basically a dome yeah. a dome is just like placed over a town and so he started writing this in the 70s so it's like what happens when everybody's trapped in under the dome, right? And you have the rise of this figure, Big Jim Rennie. He becomes the mm. de facto leader. Mm. And you have like this, basically this argument against um, allowing charismatic demagogues take over just because you feel like you need a strong figure in that moment, you know? And he's been doing this since the 70s. He did it in The Stand. Randall Flagg in The Stand doesn't just govern Las Vegas because everybody's scared of him, which they are, but also because they think we need a strong leader. You have people in Las Vegas who are just there to help turn the lights back on, get the infrastructure back up and running. They're good people. They mean well, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think Stephen King argues in Dance... So he's written another non-fiction book called Dance Macabre, which is about um, horror and sci-fi and pop um, culture of his generation, let's say. And he talks about horror movies and sci-fi as representing the national phobic pressure point. So he says it's a kind of Freudian treatment that you experience the trauma around you and then you write it out. So, you know, why was it in the 70s we had so many sci-fi movies about aliens who look like us? So you've alien invasions, like as in pew, 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 killed the humans, but then the ones like um, Day of the Triffids and um, what's that other one? The 70s invasion of the body snatchers. Invasion of the body snatchers, exactly. Yeah, they look like us. This is, I mean, hello, Soviet Union, anyone, you know, that sort of, they look like us, but they're different. Like, what's so bad about it? Yeah, the 50s one is the exact same, yeah, it's it's all They're white people, how can they be bad? I mean, think about um, (laughs) it in the 80s. There's a lot of blood in it. 
there is a gay character who's beaten up for being gay and then Pennywise eats him. Um, but there is a lot of sort of, you know, fixation around that. And then you have, I don't know why in the 90s he starts writing about battered wives so much, you know, but mm. there, you do get these things leaking into what he's writing. Cultural that he's, reflections. Like, yeah, yeah, that he, he sort that's of... That's what all good fantasy and sci-fi does is it speaks to the present very, very acutely. Like, it speaks to the... It does. It's, it's, a, it's the pressure point. And, like, if it, it reflects back the present and immediate future in a way that people can digest. And, yeah, and it, it, you know? it gives you orientation. Yeah. And I like that they can sort of playfully take it down a line and say, like, particularly in 11, 22, 63, because, you know, people say, if I could have stopped the murder of JFK, everything mm. would be different. He posits, a f- you know, a scenario in which somebody could try and stop the murder of JFK and then you get this sort of the playing this out of that. This is what you would have to do. This is your, this is your cute fantasy. Oh, and it's it, it real practical as well. I love oh. that. Um, That's dead. You know what's weird? Have you heard of a game called Gone Home? Yeah, so I've played Gone Home. Okay, you know her father's book that he wrote, his novel? <coughs> yeah. That's 11 things 63. No. It's about a guy going back in time and saving Kennedy. His book oh, that really? this character's father wrote. That's really beautiful. That's uh, amazing. Beautiful video game. Very unlike anything that I've ever played. Oh. I can't tell you anything about it. Because you have played. Okay. Like, the, the, the very basic premise is you went away to Europe for a year when you were 19. Your parents and sister moved house while you were away. And you've come back a week early and they're not there. And you're going through the house. So you're exploring your, this new house to figure out what, where your, your family have gone. So you explore the house, explore each room. Pick up everything, look at it. You know nothing oh, cool. about yourself until you go through this house to learn who, your, who you are, about your family, about your home. Mm-hmm. And it is stunning. Just it's the so amount of story they held just from oh. the house without anything else it's just incredible yeah it's yeah. It's, it's a it's a very it's a point and click very traditional game in that you there's no shooting jumping none of this bullshit it's just a it's a meditation it's kind mm. of like a it's, it's a choose your own adventure yeah um, but, but basically you find a box of your father's novel that he wrote and it's that book oh that's it's, class yeah it's oh, weird. It's and it would have came out 2013, 14 yeah pretty much cool like same time yeah. yeah I'm playing Ori in the Blind Forest at the moment do you know this one? No. no. It's, it's fun. Just Super Mario Brothers for grown-ups, I think. Deadly. That's around. I came home at half two in the morning from a party last night and Kerry was playing a game called The Stanley, Stanley Parable, which is a uh, narration. Again, it's horror. It feels like horror to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's set in an office and you're, there's a very well-spoken um, Attenborough-ish narrator explaining about your day and you come into work one day and there's nobody here. So you walk out the door and the door opens. So you walk out the door and then you go down the corridor um, towards the meeting room and then you come up on two doors. It's like, Stanley takes the door to the right. But you can take the door to the left. Oh, cool. And you can go against what the narrator is explaining to you. So it's about narration and cho- uh, there's like, I think there's, there's uh, loads of endings. Like I played through the game. Every ending, every game that you play within it is 20 minutes long. But there are dozens of alternate endings. So you just go through this terrifying empty office alone <laughs> <laughs> uh, while this narrator is either railing against you or uh, instructing you to behave a certain way and you're obeying him. And you can obey sometimes and disobey other times. It's like this endless chain of narrative. It's uh, stunning. It's stunning. And it's again, it's similar, visually similar to Gone Home in that you're going through an environment, you know, nothing about yourself, nothing about, it's not, it's novel-esque in that way where hmm. you, it's, it's, it's a novel in the second person that you're experiencing. Like it's really really worth going into. I think I'm going to go home and play it a bunch more after I've read this amazing tome. <laughs> this amazing stone. What other, what, have there been other adaptations of Stephen King's work? Because aside so from, has there been, have there been games? 
They're just games. I don't know yeah. off the top of my head. I know that there are certainly a lot of um, comic book adaptations of The Dark Tower, mm. which look very nice. And I know that when ebooks became a thing, um, Stephen King was one of the first people to get on board with that. Um, when Amazon launched the second generation Kindle, he wrote a book called Ur, or a short story rather called Ur. And it was only available on Kindle. And it's about a guy getting a Kindle. And he his account logs him into this like alternative reality. So it's like, what if Hemingway had lived an extra five years and wrote this other novel as well? And actually it was great. And and he's able to access all these, like in an alternative world, he's he's finally written that novel himself. But actually it's terrible. So in, in all, is it that he didn't write it or that in all versions it's terrible? But he finds access to newspapers and he finds access to um, future stuff as well. And um, so he ends up being able to, you know, predict that there's going to be a terrible car crash the following day involving someone he knows. So it was really playful. I think it's a good story in its own right and yeah. it totally works. In terms of games, I wouldn't be surprised if there were. And his stamp is all over ones that we play all the time, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, he's he's getting to a point now where this is, I feel like this is my Stephen King 101. So I'm just <laughs> like, my God, he's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. Actually, as an editor... How do you find his like style and his like his sentences? Oh, like quite bad. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> quite, I I also blame him for my inability to make good small talk because he's got this real folksy main um, dialogue in a lot of his books that is not how people talk. Um, mm. Like for instance, like the, the six year old in it drops. When his boat falls in the thing, he doesn't just go, oh, my boat fell. He goes, shit and shinola. <laughs> you know, just like, well, I don't know. Maybe that's what six-year-olds said in 1957. <clears throat> but um, there's a lot of really terrible catchphrases um, that characters use. And um, they, they kind of make you cringe. But in a way, the awfulness of them lends something of it. I don't want to say authenticity but it, it gives something to it like the fact that he includes everything maybe I don't know mm. what it is about it that it feels more truthful it's like yes it's awful but that's what happened you know mm. um, he's got long overwritten um, episodes so like in It when we meet Stanley the grown up Stanley we get about 30 pages about Stanley's wife and she is a minor character. We just know that Stanley's grown up. He's married now. And he, he learns that it is back. So he kills mm. himself. That's all you need to know. You don't need 30 pages about this woman. Um, but maybe you do. Maybe it's because it's a misdirection. And so that when he dies, it really is her tragedy too. And yeah. maybe it's to take us out of something. But there's vast sections of many of his books that could be cut. Um, <laughs> and also... There, there is sadly a problem with continuity in the Dark Tower series because right. he started writing it let's see he started writing it in 1982 and he finished in 2014 and so there there are continuity errors um, that, that um, I guess it was going to happen because it's an eight book series so what are you going to yeah. do um, uh, yeah I, I really hate the criticism this book needed an editor or needed more editing mm -hmm. because I think that's kind of a cop out. It doesn't allow for the fact that possibly an editor sat down and said this has to go and the author argued for it. And that happens a lot mm -hmm. where you sit down and you go, okay, well, how about a compromise or whatever? But, you know, somebody has to sign off on a book and there are numerous sign off phases that a book goes through. Yeah. And people do have to sit down and say, really, are we really going to go? Are we going to press go on this? And even when you go to the printer, there are sign-off phases. And mm. it to me, 
it's rarely the case that somebody just didn't edit something. It's either, have you heard this about Morrissey when Morrissey sent in his autobiography? No. Uh, he declined to be edited. So that's one instance where the criticism is fair. This book needed yeah. an editor. Oh my like God, when he that's was doing monstrous. <laughs> when Stephen King was doing like two books a year, there's probably only so many drafts or like reattention he was given stuff as well. Could be. There's only so much you can actually. I come wonder. Back to you it. know, in Bag of Bones, so Bag of Bones was from 1999, I think. And it's about this um, author whose wife dies, mm. and he just all the creativity dries up. And he, he can't write anything and he's under a lot of pressure because he's a big famous author. He's very much a proxy for Stephen King, I think. Um, and it turns out that he went through a very prolific phase where he was writing two or three books a year and he had been putting all these manuscripts aside mm. in, a, in a safety deposit box. So now he's in this dry period. He just goes to the safety deposit box, takes out one of the old manuscripts and he gives it to his editor who says, this is fantastic. It's one of the best things you've written in years. And he does this for like three books in a row mm. and critics start writing that his style has matured over the years. <laughs> and I just really felt like that was him really subtly needling at people saying, you don't know, like maybe, because here's the mm. thing, his very first novel published was Carrie, but that was his fourth novel that he'd written and he had published many short stories. Was yeah. he a big hit so, initially? Did he start off a star? Or he, did he grow towards stardom? He, Sorry, I'm doing the thing again. <laughs> uh, the, the, so he was totally skint, living in a trailer with his wife. He was teaching English and he had published a couple of short stories in what were then called men's magazines. So ah. like Cavalier and stuff like that. And he wrote Carrie as a short story, threw it in the bin. His wife fished it out of the bin and said, oh no, here, give this another go. There's something in it. And he sent it to Doubleday and he was trying to write. So he asked the phone company to take away his phone to save money. <gasps> And so nobody could contact him. So Doubleday had to send him a telegram, carry officially a Doubleday book, $2,500 advance. Here's to the future, kid. Like, <laughs> oh here's to the future indeed. So the yeah. first hardback sold. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, that's amazing. What a beautiful, like, that's that what, what, what a thing to receive. What a thing. So yeah. the, the hardback with Doubleday, or was it not Doubleday? It mightn't have been Doubleday now. I could be wrong. But it, the first, the hardback only did 13,000 copies. And then they got, they sold paperback rights. And that might have been to Doubleday. I might be mixing them up. Maybe that was at Random House. They were different at the time. But anyway, they sold the mass market paperback rights to a bigger company. So the hardback in its first year, 13,000, which, you know, wasn't super, but actually, you know, by today's standards, pretty Mm. good, sad to say. But the paperback did a million copies in its first year. (gasps) First year. And that is, the movie didn't come along for another four years. And then he just became massive overnight. That kind of shit's a real hope for us all moment, isn't it? You know? It it was the biggest book in 1983, the biggest seller. A 1300 page book about a killer clown yeah I'm looking at this and right. I, I, I listeners it's not can't a killer clown, it's not a killer clown. <laughs> it is an eldritch spider god monster from of outer space that yeah. eats your yeah made of dead lights <laughs> and it eats your fear but yeah. yeah I think every book he would for a long time every book he put out was the big book it was him mm. John Grisham and um, I don't know VC was VC Andrews doing those kind of numbers that was another thing I shouldn't have been reading when I was a kid oh, Flowers in the, the Attic, attic. Yeah. yeah fuck Flowers in the Attic <laughs> fuck that book <laughs> I know. my mum would let us read that and she was brilliant she was all into her Sydney Sheldon and her Frederick Forsyth and she was just like as long as you're reading I don't care yeah my man and I were a little bit as, my, my man and I were very protective over, over what I read like they wouldn't let me read Jacqueline Wilson they wouldn't let me read uh, any modern gal books which is weird because like hmm. 
all my mates write gal books and I think gal books are great but I didn't read them as a teenager because my mum and dad were like no here's Lord of the Rings here's Gormenghast <laughs> like, Gormenghast <laughs> Gormenghast awesome. is my favourite book from a teenager my teenager. mum was British she was just like read whatever you like if you want books you can have books That's but steady. one day a girl in school gave me a Mills and Boone book ah. and it was called something like The Devil You Know and I was like oh a book about devils great and I brought it home <laughs> and I was like oh there's no devils and it's about a guy with a yacht and uh, my mother went spare what are you reading that for that's trash and so on I started flipping out and she's like I don't object to the sex but there is no merit to this and like yeah that's, that's, that's why my friend. parents wouldn't let me read like pink pink books that was kind of the vibe pink they were just books. like no pink books mm. no pink books so you're not allowed to read like that's stupid you don't want that I remember trying to read a Jacqueline Wilson book in a friend's house um, and feeling really fucking like alienated by it and being like Oh, the, this is what teenage girls are meant to be like yeah, oh that's it bad is, news for me <laughs> you know like, I was a bit like I'm not like any of these people uh, I'm good thank you uh, yeah. I'll tell you what like, my ma passed me down my ma was a big reader like is still like a like ferocious ferocious reader and um, she uh, read a lot of weird historical maritime type novels so I never I never kind of got into those that is so niche yeah, historical it's very specific. There's like a huge, huge series like of Patrick maritime books. Obsessed, and she won't yeah. read the last one because she doesn't want to know how it ends. Yeah. And I'm real, oh. I'm real like that about series as well. I never want to know how things end. But she, I remember being a kid and her. You liked Dark Tower because there is the, the endings. There's this whole a non-ending. Um, Love non-endings. There's there's a just before the ending moment where you're invited to stop reading. Because I'm here, I, I live for the that. Dark Tower, and it's there in the name. Roland is trying to get to the Dark Tower. So the whole series is does Roland get to the Dark Tower or not? So like by the last book, there there is a part where it's like, do you want do you want to keep reading? Oh um, my god, that's amazing! It's kind of confronting the um, reader as being complicit, and that's something that Stephen King does a lot. He's like, you know, I I write these horrible stories, but you keep buying the damn books. You're complicit. You're coming with You're me. Why You're coming the with me. Giant dog is attacking the woman in the car. You wanted this, you know. Um, so meta. You, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I, yeah, he's like an addict, and we're like. We're, well, we're the addict, really, aren't we? We keep buying the damn. I books. feel, but I this is, but this is the exact kind of talk that, like, I feel like I missed out, you know, and I'm really pumped <laughs> that I'm going to start reading this now because I feel like it would have done me a whole lot of good. I think you know? so. And now here's the problem with Stephen King is that um, reading him as an adult, as a sort of well-read, educated adult, you're probably going to be affronted by a lot of the the <sighs> clunky prose, the bad. All our faves are problematic, but like I mean, I'm curious enough now to kind of give it a bash. And it and isn't that terrible when that happens when you discover something a bit later in life that was would have been very very impactful during your teens, but you somehow missed it. Like mm-hmm. that that is that's the most interesting thing for me about Juvenilia. I tell you what, if I haven't done this, the things that you miss along the way. Like it's really, really easy mm. to just miss things that are so important to lots of other people because it was the world before the internet. You couldn't just search. If someone says to you, oh, here's this author that I love, you should go and like, that's whips out smartphone explains. Like back then it was kind of like, oh. That was it. Yeah. My, you know, my internet was like my sister Eilish, our friend Paula and my cousin Paul. And they were all. Where like, are you on the chain of siblings? You're not the eldest. Are you? No, I'm second. Second. Yeah. And Eilish and I are kind of what they the call Irish, Irish twins. twins. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we're a year apart, so we would re- read a lot together. I was the eldest in my house. And the eldest as well. And my my parents ah. didn't really read either. My father would read like some sports biographies at Christmas. My mother maybe reads one or two books a year. Yeah, see, yeah. I don't think my so, parents like, would have given. My aunt gave me a Rodal box set. And oh. I read that, and then I saw my cousin reading, who was babysitter, reading Terry Pratchett. Ah. And then I got one of his young adult books. 
in a book club in school and then they then the cousin gave me all her ones cousins are so important yeah. our cousins but I, I only, remember only and the eldest cousin yeah. I remember being in my Auntie Mary's house and her sons had like the biggest collection of Viz comics oh, ever yeah. and I remember just when we'd be over there if they were babysitting us and stuff you'd just be reading Viz for mm. hours and hours at a time very formative like how yeah. do you feel like that, that's the thing about being the like I feel, I feel that with music very acutely like I miss, <laughs> yeah. miss so much you know, music because so, I didn't have yeah. any older siblings Select Magazine was my older sibling because oh. <laughs> they would recommend music and they'd have the books like this where I heard about like American Psycho and Trainspotting oh. and all oh, those kind yeah, of teenage books you read where's yeah. all the cult you know my bo- yeah. the ones my mom, the books my mother gave me from her childhood my mother has a sibling who's like the same age as her as well Irish twin style and she would but she's the eldest Mallory Towers and St. Clair's boarding school books yeah uh, which are effectively pink books yeah. they're gal they're gal books but I read all those when I was like seven or eight because I was just like a lunatic I think Mallory Towers is a bit more respectable though I mean it's a bit more substantial I mean I, it doesn't strike me as I, like I, I learned nothing oh. <laughs> I learned nothing I, I I thought I wanted to go to boarding school I didn't you know that kind of thing sure. I, I don't have any not that I don't have any fond memories of them but I don't have any profound memories of them sure you know and there's, I guess there's only ever going to be a couple of books that you read growing up that really did what Carrie did for you for example which yeah. is just like an awakening See, I think I think books for kids are kind of no use to you when you're a kid. Books for adults you read when you're a kid are the ones that really make Oh, the ones that sneak down the line are yeah. vital. The ones that you should not be... Because you know, like when you're reading a book, this is where a lot of us learn about sex is from mm. reading a book, mm. you know. And I remember re- I remember being in my granny's house <sighs> reading some book and there was a sex scene and my granny saying, look at you there reading, aren't you great? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, like, great. Oh, I, might, I might just go out for a little walk. <laughs> yeah, it's going to go in ca- case of the papers. But you, go. you would get like, you'd get away with reading terrible filth and all sorts of and people would say look isn't she great reading you know instead of stuck in front of that old telly and like it's it's so covert I yeah. suppose it makes you co- but I remember going to secondary school and I had a few different English teachers and one of them was like I'm going to get you guys all reading you all have to you do your regular school work but you need to bring home a book every week and you need to be reading and like pick a book and mm. I said <laughs> I was such an asshole kid I was like these are all way too young for me these are really boring I'm not going to read them it's okay I'm reading Firestarter at the moment <laughs> and she was like Lisa I don't mind you reading blockbusters but once in a while you have to read a real book and <gasps> I, that was the first so you realised that they weren't I was yeah. like, they're not good it's, I, honest to God it didn't occur to oh, me what a shitty thing for a teacher to say as and well. she gave me the worst book to read oh god it was such a terrible book and I remember reading it and writing a really spiteful report on it and then going back to read and Firestarter by the way is awesome it's about a girl who can set things on fire with her mind so oh Matilda god. again yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and very stranger things actually the shop the secret government oh. agency are doing experiments on people and this this couple they both have like um, telekinetic powers and um, they fall in love and their daughter can light things on fire with her mind oh. and so it, the, the book starts with Charlie and her father on the run from from the shop so the shop are very like in Stranger Things so we started watching Stranger Things and Matthew Modine's gang in their, their hazmat suits come yeah. out. I was like oh my god it's the, the shop, shop. Um, so it's just her like on the run from the government that's, that's um, a really weird experience to have with an English teacher I'm sorry I'm completely flashing into this now I'm being given shitty books and while you're reading fun ones and writing spiteful reports <laughs> there is a uh, this I had some great English teachers though I should say I had Mr. White for junior cert and he was brilliant and he made me love Sean O'Casey and, I, and like oh. Loki is why I did a PhD in Irish theatre later on no, mine, good, mine good was person. very dis- my English teacher was very dismissive and we clashed heads a lot because he told me I had lots of opinions I hadn't earned and that uh, is something that you say to a teenager once 
and she never forgets. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, and I Gorman Gatz. And look was at like, you now, and <laughs> you so demure. And I am <laughs> still like, angry. What do what do uh, men think? Like old men when they tell young women you've too many opinions. That like a he woman was twenty four, man. He was really young. Oh yeah, God! Was really uh, was I was like sixteen. Yeah, oh. uh, it was something. It was a. It was something. But uh, so Gormenghast was one of the books my parents gave me that they shouldn't have given me because there was a BBC miniseries made again. Ten out of ten. Watercolor and weird as fuck. Jonathan Rhys Myers is seventeen in it. It is uh, Stephen uh, Fry, uh, Christopher Reeves, um, like uh, just star-studded, bizarro story about uh, a fictional dynasty in a castle um, and a kitchen boy who murders and seduces and manipulates his way up through the chain of the dynasty over a series of years. It's a trilogy. Mervyn Peake, the author, died halfway through writing the last book. So that's not, it's a bit of a sad, odd read. Uh, but the first two, uh, Titus Grown and Gormagast, are fucking amazing. And uh, You know, a, there's a beautiful edition of Gormagast in Chapters on Parnell Street, a lovely like illustrated edition. I have that one. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of it because he was an illustrator. Mervyn Peake was an illustrator as well. Uh-huh. So his work is, and the, which is why the TV series is really fucking beautiful and weird anyway I, my mum and dad picked up a VHS set in a discount store it might have been like the Kilken- like not quite the Kilkenny village but some big discount mall that we went to outside of Dublin yeah. and it, there was a video shop just at the sort of the very end of videos and they got there they got me this like this looks like fantasy you will like this <laughs> so I got obsessed with it and I started to try and read it and in actual fact the novel The Kitchen Boy Escapes because he's being sexually abused by the chef who's this giant like pig-like monster and he has all of his little fleet of kitchen boys no and kidding. he's awful there's a kitchen Swel- chef swelter is his name and then master flay is the uh, is the head but- butler and the two of them are at odds all the time there's a villainous chef in dark tower in there's a yeah a kitchen there's a like a, a family like a like an elevated family and there's a thing with a sh- I wonder was he was that a nod to Gormenghast it might be because there's a ton of things like he keeps referencing like say Richard Adams and oh, Tolkien oh, and see, um, and 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 Peak was a bit like that but Gormenghast is pure gothic like it is so, I, I absolutely did not pick up so much of it reading it as a child like reading it when I was like fucking fourteen I've never read Gormenghast I'm gonna get Do on get that. in on it get in it and here's the other funny thing a segment of it comes up in one of the example juniors her papers that's where I know from yeah. And no. it's like yeah. Lord Sepulcrave has a big fucking library, right? And he's obsessed with his library. Mm. And one of the things that Steerpike does, and as, as part of his get up the dynasty vibe, is burn the library down and drive Lord Sepulcrave out of his mind. So he starts thinking he's an owl and hangs out in a tower with a bunch of owls until he kills himself. That is in the story, right? That old and in the fucking uh, yeah, you know, standard. <laughs> and in the uh, junior search excerpt, it's a description of the library, which is. Dawning and austere and like frightening, you know, it's 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 beautiful, and I remember it very very acutely. And it pops a bit in an example paper, and I'm like, this is, maybe education is good. <laughs> and the question was, write a real estate advertisement for oh, Lord Seppel Crave's library, and I was like, what? Yeah. So I wrote this thing, being like, actually, <laughs> <laughs> if you had read the book, you would know. And uh, there's no real so estate agencies in Gormenghast. No, it's a metaphor. Like just, it's oh. And I remember being so appalled, like feeling so patronized. You yeah, know, yeah. like that my curiosity and and love of this other world, which was endlessly like it was. God, it's like, it's of the breadth and scope of like if Lord of the Rings, everything in Lord of the Rings is green, everything in Gormagast is grey. Mm-hmm. It's So like that, everything in Dark Tower is sort of sand, it's arid. Oh. Um, Dark Tower is trying to be Lord of the Rings for an American 
of Stephen King's generation. He, he wanted to be Tolkien. He's like, how would you do it here? It would be somebody who looked like um, the man uh, Cliff uh, Clint Eastwood played in um, The Ma- Man With No Name. Is that what oh, it's yeah, called? Oh, yeah, Good, Bad, the Ugly. Yeah. 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 Um, would you rank him with Tolkien? King. Uh, yeah, I think it's a big epic fantasy work with lots of detail around it. And I think they're both given to overwriting. And is it as both poetic as talking? Or is it? Uh, no. Like, is the writing beautiful? That's another <gasps> I, question. Yeah, I, I, think there's the, I think it's deft. I think there's a lot of visual stuff and there's a lot of um, character driven stuff. There's a lot of characters being confronted with their own sort of um, their own failings and having to um, yeah, Tolkien doesn't really them. roll into that does it he doesn't really go into character Tolkien I find really I don't know Archaic. everybody's so white yeah. <laughs> you know? um, what I like about Dark Tower is that you have a one of the major characters is black and she's a wheelchair user and you have like she's she's just this fucking great character and she's complicated and she, you have like just the practical problems of being in a post-apocalyptic sci-fi world that is changing to, and having literally like the, my wheels won't go over this somebody has to help me um, and she's a cool character and uh, but it's deeply flawed in a lot of ways as well and kind of rambly nonsense but I like it I, I, I don't know did I like it as much as Lord of the Rings something but in terms of him being a literary giant like whether he's pop a popular literary giant you know like would you rank him alongside like the like, is, is he canonical like yeah I think so I think yeah yeah I think every, everything he's written has infected writing so much mm. that yeah he is too important because he's, he's infected in media and like cinema and mm-hmm. television like everything. so, does that give you does that give you a place alongside Dickens or something? Because so Dickens was a populist writer as yeah, well. Yeah, here's the thing, time. and you know what drove me bonkers? We did Hard Times for the Leaving Cert, Oof. and I was like, excuse me, to talk about your bad books. I mean, <laughs> God, Hard Times is drivel. Really? Yeah, it's yeah. really bad. The operative word is hard. Oh, <laughs> Other operative word is time. <laughs> characters with these like phonetic names, and Mister Bounderby, who's a bounder, funnily enough, is in like a class bounder, and you have um, Stephen Poole, whose wife is a terrible alcoholic, and this, I literally think he didn't know what to do with Stephen Poole character and that's why he dropped the guy in a big hole in the ground to kill him off I think it's just a lot of bad writing Dickens and Stephen King do share um, serialisation of their work so the Green Mile they're kind Mile, of pulpy in some pulpy, yeah, yeah. yeah. so Dickens wrote the autobiography or the biography rather of the Grimaldi clown guy in his sketches ah. by Boz and stuff um, he, um, he so obviously he serialised stuff and if you're writing by the word you overwrite so you get more money by the word you know so I think that's why, why he would overdo it but um, Stephen King when he wrote The Green Mile which you might have seen the TV the, the film adaptation mm-hmm. of that was serialised initially when, when he did that and he didn't really know how it was going to end himself he was making it up as he went along and I think that he writes about baby boomers in a way that Dickens is writing about what he saw around him, uh, mm. how society is not dealing with what it's turned into. Oh God, into. has he I turned on the millennials yet, Stephen King? He wrote this amazing he's short got some hot story. Takes. <laughs> yeah, here's his hot take. So he's got this um, short story collection called The Bazaar of Bad Dreams that came out last year. Last year. Okay, um, And I think it is absolutely terrific. It came out 2015, actually. Mm. We're not last year anymore. But anyway, it's got a short story called Herman Woke is Still Alive. And it's about two millennial age women in a camper van with their kids and they're driving and kind of going too fast and it, you, you get their backstory and their shitty lives and then meanwhile you have these two older writers in a diner talking about the best years being behind them and maybe they'll win a Pulitzer yet and they're on their way to an event and how disappointed they are and so on and basically the end of the story spoiler alert the uh, the two young women crash into the back of the car 
of the older people who now they're they're in the diner, they're okay. And I think you could read that as a metaphor as America's youth destroying itself and dying on the roads while you're in arguing about the merits of higher art. You know, yeah. um, that could could be the take on it. I think he's very critical of baby boomers. Um, yeah. well, he is one, isn't he? He certainly is. Yeah. yeah. And he's wary of them. Um, of of patterns that they fall into. But to be tr- to be distrustful of your own generation as a writer is very interesting because, like, I think a lot of writers, uh, speaking as a millennial, um, are like at the moment, especially vehemently trying to defend one another. Like, we're kind of going, no, 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 we're fine. The kids are all right. We're cool. <laughs> we have a, we, none of us can buy a house. You know, <laughs> leave us alone. But to be suspicious of your own generation is very interesting. Yeah, like Stephen King objected to the Vietnam War and he cool. campaigned against it and stuff. Now, he, he himself, he, he wasn't drafted in. He was because he'd like flat feet, bad eyesight, punctured eardrums. And he's basically a wreck. <laughs> a fucking nerd. <laughs> yeah, nerd. Um, but he has written against it. He's written against um, society being complacent and I guess people falling into patterns that are destructive to the individual. Yeah. Like one of the best villains in Stephen King is Harold Lauder from The Stand. Harold is a geek. He's madly in love with Fran. He, because he's in love with Fran, should get Fran, right? But why is Fran with Stu? What's Stu got that he hasn't got? Harold sensitive. And he's the geek that oh, he's a nice guy he's the proto nice guy he's sleazy geek guy you know that guy who's arrogant because he knows I'm so nice I'm such a nice guy why are you with me I'm a nice guy and Fran actually would be lucky to get with a guy like him and then he is elevated in the post-apocalyptic world by flag and he becomes he kind of has more stature as it goes along and he's with the good guys but he, he basically he steps over to the dark side and does something terrible for this promise of all the things that he could have that he's entitled to that he didn't get and oh my god it's the rise of the nerves man it's what's happening now it's yeah right spoiler alert he dies and he (laughs) writes a note and it just reads I'm sorry I was misled I mean I just feel like after Trump got elected the mea culpa of like an entire generation like yeah it's just that kind of Look, at I wasn't a bad guy. I wasn't to achieve bad, trying to achieve bad things, but bad things happened because of what I thought I was entitled to. Mm. Um, so I think Stephen King's quite good on I that. I think that speaks very, very weirdly, clearly. Again, in the we've we've just it's interesting doing do uh, doing listeners. We do two bumps to do nearly a day. So earlier on in the day, we were talking about uh, with Roe the idea of like the the alt right and misled nerds and misled nerds hanging out on the internet together and like reassuring one another that they deserve the best in the world and the world is just stacked against them because of these fucking libtards, etc. You know, like mm-hmm. that they're mad and they, they feel like they deserve things and if they're given an inch of power they take a mile and they do terrible things with it and the idea of receiving an I'm sorry I was misled like that's very oh, poignant it's one of the saddest very in poignant. the book and that's a big giant book and Harold's only one of a huge cast of characters and it's a really sad moment when that happens yeah. and yeah mostly people are unrepentant when, when they do that yeah and the idea of the repent like you don't really, you don't really <coughs> see that you don't Culturally, no. repentance is not is not a thing that you see of late. I feel like my entire digital sphere and news sphere lately has been without apology, uh, and especially from dudes, you know, in power and seeking power. Uh, that's very sad. Mm-hmm. That's fierce. Yeah, it's. I think the stand has a lot of relevance in today's politics. That you think how can how can this how can this happen? Mm. How can evil rise like this? It's because. People get misled. People get misled and people don't think that they're evil. And a lot of people are not evil and they are just buying into an ideology that they think is going to get them something, but they don't realise it's at the expense of something else or that they don't look at it. I don't know. What you said before we started that Stephen King informed your feminism specifically as well as your politics. Didn't you? 
Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I think he writes women really well. I, I think a lot of people would disagree with that. And that's okay. I think there are books in which women are ciphers for sexy femininity and characters mm. just to have sex with them when they meet them and they mean nothing. And then you have these fully rounded female characters who are brilliant. I, I think I learned a lot about what you would do. Like I, I think it's interesting that <clears throat> he writes monsters. And then in the 90s, he writes the monster that is the person you're married to who's in your bed, who's, mm. you know... A, a lunatic and you learn a lot about what you would do if you were in that situation which happily I have never been yeah. in that situation but it, it made me very um, <clears throat> you know when you're a teenager and your best friend has gone out with some some bollocks some bollocks yeah. some mind control bollocks I would always be like dump him like straight away <laughs> dump that jump yeah. dump him you're going to end up handcuffed to a bed in a cabin in the middle of nowhere and don't say I didn't tell you. <laughs> the glove. <laughs> You'll be degloved. 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 You have fat fingers. You can't afford this relationship. But like I, I, I think that he wrote um, abuse of men very well and with great complexity. So The Shining is a good example. Mm. Wendy and Jack <clears throat> have broken up a few times before they go to the Overlook. And now they've got Danny. And the reason Wendy is still with Jack is because... Well, kind of because of Danny and because Danny actually prefers his father to his mother and she's jealous and she's kind of confronting this all the time and she's she's ashamed of that jealousy. She wants her son to be with his father. She wants him to have this whole family unit. And so we're not looking... So this is another interesting thing, I think. Uh, you know, Stephen King hates the Kubrick adaptation of The Shining. Did you know this? No. Yeah, um, huh. yeah it's... It, it, you know... Whether it's a stunning it's, piece of cinema. Like, right, in its own right. But as an adaptation, it is, uh, it is not it's, it's Kubrick being like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it, so, it yeah. goes quite far in terms yeah. of set pieces and stuff. It's yes. a very different thing altogether. Yeah. So yeah. in Kubrick's version, when they arrive at the Overlook, Jack is kind of already mad. I mean, it's, it's uh, what's his name? Jack Nicholson looking mm. like a lunatic. Mm. <laughs> He's just, just crazy in her He looks yeah. crazy and off he goes. Nobody's surprised. And Shelley Duvall looks terrified and she's a wreck the whole time. Oh, she's got a great face. She great terrified face. Yeah. And you're like, oh, for God's sake, pull yourself together, woman. <laughs> Whereas in the book, he is trying to be a better man. He is trying not to be his alcoholic father. And he didn't mean to beat up that kid, but he just lost his temper. But he's going to get on the straight and narrow. He's going to go out to this hotel and he's going to do bare knuckle sobriety because AA wasn't really a thing then. And Stephen King himself had his own alcohol issues, you know. So you're out in this. So he and Wendy go out there. So Wendy is almost similarly an, al- an alcoholic and an addict in that she's like, I'm, this relationship's going to work. I'm going to work on it and it's going to make sense. And like, you know, when you watch the movie, it's so easy to see Shelley Duvall as that typical woman in horror movies in the 70s who is just shrieking and running away. And you're like, stand your ground, get an axe and whatever. Mm. But like in the book, it's like, she really thinks something's going to happen. She really thinks that they, they could it could all be fixed. She's doing it for her son. She has guilt. She's complicated and interesting. And I think he writes very well the, the ebb and flow of an abusive relationship. Why somebody would stay with someone like that? Why? Because she's been in it so long now, she's sort of committed in a different kind of way as well that she has to see it out. Mm. And then the problem of somebody saying, well, actually, your husband's brain's been infested by the ghost of an evil hotel. Like you don't, you know... <laughs> You think, Anna, it's probably grand. I love the idea of buildings being able to possess people. Man, that is one of my favourite, like, and most frightening, like, it's so upsetting, the idea that a concrete structure is in some way inherently bad. That's something Stephen King's obsessed with in Uh, um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. uh, So Stephen King Queen Shirley. (laughs) His his take on it is she's the first person who wrote of the house as the bad place. Mm. 
rather than the ghost being in it and, and he borrows from that from time so you got the Overlook and the house on Nybolt Street in It it's a really fucking terrible like house picking up this book again <laughs> like, um, holding I, it yeah. like a terrible child but yeah he's um, and I wonder is it as you say because all of America is an ancient Indian is this all right? possessed by its own sins it's like America you did this <laughs> like yeah, what did you think was going to fucking happen like I was uh, talking to somebody last night and I was telling them about being in Kilralig, uh, the when the 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 artist's retreat mm-hmm. and she's a Gwilgor and she went Ralic kill Ralic that means grave <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are we doing going there <laughs> I was like oh fair yeah. is that where you I had that ghost experience yeah yeah, yeah, yeah okay. of course it was a beautiful amazing place <laughs> stunning place to make work vibrating with energy like mm. big time and there are places that are like sites of horror and tragedy and that vulnerability I think because I'm superstitious as fuck, crawls into concrete. All of America is haunted by what it has fucking done, like, quite literally. Like, the fucking, the blood of your fucking ancestors, you know? Or and or not your ancestors. The people your ancestors killed, you In, know? In um, Jerusalem's Lot, the short story, it's this town that turns out that it was built on top of another town. <gasps> the other town was just so fucked, they just built a new one on top. But the problem is, we learn from, from the letters, that um, some, something's bubbling up again yes yeah it's great I oh love that God. layers apparently John Connolly does this very well and I haven't read a lot of his stuff I just read um, I want to say the book of lost things oh stunning called. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I understand his crime fiction is similarly it treats like America as a palimpsest and that the stories layer the histories layer mm. and that's what causes I think there's a supernatural aspect to his work now I don't read his stuff my sister I read, I read a, the book of lost things and I felt I think I watched Pan's Labyrinth the same week Oh, nice and one. And I was a bit like, oh, look at, oh, sad kid escapes. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's that kind of vibe about it. But it was stunning, as I remember. I like it for the layering of um, stories that you'd recognise. Yeah. Like, I love when yeah. things try to fit in all the... They reward you for having read. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. it is. It's like, look, we know you've been here. And it's so if you know, like, all the 1970s universal monsters, mm. then it is great for that. It's got the mummy, it's got the wolfman. Oh. These spooky fuckers. But I, I'm trying to think of like, of, of like what, why Stephen King's a feminist. I think because he writes really strong women and because they are real characters and they rescue themselves and they he advances a feminist ideology generally in his books. Mm. Um, misogynists never prosper or, you know, if they do, it's not in a way that the narrative ever approves of. Yeah. He writes... Um, yeah, opinionated, pushy women who are in scenarios where they can't help themselves... Uh, or or can they? And I th- it really informed me for for many years. It made me really opinionated. And I think I'm trying to think of a good example of <coughs> what is most what's his most femo book. I'll have to have a think about that one because he's also it's been sort of put that he he has problems with how he writes women. If you think about it, the mother in Carrie. Sonia Kasprak, one of the mothers in It, and Annie Wilkes, and there's another really awful mother. He writes, he writes the terrible mother, which mm. is that's a problem as well. But I wonder if this isn't just a baby boomer thing that's coming out, mm. that obsession with bad mothers. That um, if only I'd had the right upbringing, everything would be perfect. Yeah. So he writes, oh, grandma. Ooh, it's a short story about a little boy alone in the house with his dying grandmother. Just, it's okay. Just, you know, we'll be back shortly. Mm. Just let us know if anything happens. Just don't go in there. Don't talk to her. Don't listen to her. Okay? Just stay there. You're fine. And she's like, Don't talk to anyone. Don't look at anyone. Don't let anyone touch you. It turns out gr- grandma's a little off. 
know, so it's kind of the monstrous older woman. Mm. Um, Decay. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's offensive as a trope, but um, I think that's a, f- a fragment of how he writes women and he more often writes complicated, interesting women. I think the, mm. like the, the um, I've just forgotten her name from Pet Cemetery. Lewis's Rachel. Wife. Rachel. Yeah. Yeah, she's got a complicated backstory. Mm. Even like little things in It, uh, Bill Denbro, he's so he's one of the main characters. His parents are not super important to the narrative, but there's a scene in the beginning, very iconic, where his mother is playing Furelise and he hears it. So that just that song becomes a memory for him. Mm. But she's not just his mother who's playing Furelise, we're told she went to Juilliard. You know? Mm. I just I like that he goes to that trouble. Yeah. To say that she's like she's not just chilling on the piano. She's yeah. Very real, you know, real and complicated, a, and it's the details. It's detail giving giving female characters detail. I think and like integrity and history is something that you don't see very often. Like and that's that's how you broaden experience. You know, and g- gender is treated interestingly in it later in the book in a way I don't want to get into. But let's talk about it after you read it. Yeah, let's revisit this. <laughs> yeah. This is the business. This is our longest episode ever. Oh, now, so oh we God, should, sorry. We should Amazing. probably wind it up. Yeah. I, know. I don't could, want we, to. I want we to could talk going. for another hour, I know. Yeah. So, Lisa, any final thoughts or anything you want to finish up on? No. If you want to recommend someone to start on Stephen King, where should If you start? were going to start on Stephen King... Like, I think it would be ridiculous to start with it because it's, what, 13,000 pages. I'm about to start with it. <laughs> I'm about to walk into this. I think it's amazing. I love it. But I think maybe Pet Cemetery is a good one to start with. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. But I was wondering about this. Do people want me to persuade them to read Stephen King? So you just have. Do you reckon? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm a giant pain in the ass when I talk about it. But listen, here's the thing I forgot to talk about, actually, with it. Um, Kerry Fukunaga was going to direct it he's the guy who directed the first season of True Detective yes. which is perfect perfect mm. because of that brilliant way they expressed the cosmos at the end of that mm. and how time is a flat circle and all that and that would have been perfect but anyway he left and Andres Machete is doing it instead um, so that's just a, a thing I wanted to say I can't remember why but in okay. terms of like oh yeah over the Christmas I was thinking like about the way I keep trying to persuade people to read Stephen King and I was wondering like is this not really annoying so I turned to my sisters and I said I've never read Harry Potter should I doesn't sound great just as a kind of an experiment <laughs> yeah. and they fucking lit me like, <laughs> you snob typical and, give, and I was like no 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 persuade me to read Harry Potter doesn't sound great you know and I just got absolutely et for it and I thought you know maybe if you're not into it you're not into it you shouldn't have to read it it's okay and you just you know do your thing but um yeah, for final. Uh, yeah, Stephen King says, you know, just live your life, try to be brave, stand. Lisa Cohen. Thank Lisa you so Cohen. much. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> and there we go. Thank you again to Lisa Cohen, who was fantastic and knowledgeable. Uh, Lisa, as you mentioned, is one half of Trump Press and the newest book they have out is A Lion Made by Walking by Sarah Baum I haven't read it yet but I'm looking over my bookshelf and I can see five other Trump Press books because they have some kind of magic touch and everything they put out is amazing so buy like buy A Lion Made by Walking and then buy as many other Trump Press books as you can uh, also buy Sarah Maria Griffin's book Spare and Found Parts um, online or in the Gutter Bookshop in Dublin because it's amazing I loved it um, it's really really good I'm not just saying that it is really really good um, I want to thank Dee McDonald for her artwork as always I want to thank Headstuff for supporting us and hosting us 
thank you for listening to this. I hope you are going to go read some Stephen King now, because I, I did after we recorded it. Um, Pet Cemetery, oh my god. Like, like I hadn't finished it then, but I finished it now, and oh, Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Um, what else? Subscribe to us and leave a review on iTunes. That That would be nice. It's my birthday in August, so this is like a five month early birthday present which I think I think that's okay it's acceptable this is 2017 the rules don't apply anymore um and I think that's it so we'll see you in two weeks and thank you for listening goodbye <laughs>